With all the players arriving here from Korea and Japan, shouldn't we try to know more about how it works in Korea and Japan? I'll ask Tim McLeod about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 4th. It's show number 27 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com discussing some of the ins and outs of baseball in the Far East, as well as some interesting players in Detroit, the Rays' method of promoting top prospects like Wander Franco, or not, some bullpen situations worth watching, and some more. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols covers the National League, including Steven Strasburg, Lorenzo Kane, Jack Flaherty, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including terrible injuries to a couple of twins, an injury and an activation in Seattle, and some more American League news. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at two Baltimore prospects, catcher Adley Rutschman and right-handed starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Tampa right-handed starter Joe Ryan. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about taking a deeper look at a gombering. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Prospects361.com. Tim, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time you've been on the show. As a matter of fact, Patrick, it is the first time. And thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Looking forward to talking some baseball with you today. And of course, we've known each other for a long time through First Pitch Arizona. I think that's where we first met. And it's interesting, of course, in that milieu to find anybody who's from Canada and you kind of bond instantly. I remember once I was down there and I ran into a guy who was from Regina, which is where I was sort of established my adult life. And that was pretty interesting. And then another time I was in the Walmart here in Waterloo, Ontario, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and there's a guy I met at First Pitch Arizona. He's from Pittsburgh or someplace, but his girlfriend lives up here. So it was, uh, it's a real, the great, the great thing about fantasy baseball, I guess, First Pitch Arizona, but the game in general is the social aspect of it is, is really good that you make lots of friends. Some of them become uh, real important in your life. Well, yeah, I've been very fortunate over the years and so much of it is through First Pitch uh, Arizona. I've made so many great friends uh from one coast to the other and you're right uh you know every once in a while you'll be you'll be in wherever and somebody will tap you on the shoulder or yell yell across the room hey are you and (laughs) it's 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 sort of cool it really is it's a small world out there when you get when you really look at it you know i was i was once going through customs at pearson on my way down to uh, tout wars in Mm -hmm. new york city and uh, i got handed the guy my passport and my boarding pass and what have you and waiting. And he goes, are you the guy from baseball HQ radio? 
And I go, as a, matter, as a matter of fact, and now I'm thinking uh, either I'm in trouble because I gave him a bad tip or I should have packed yeah. a, you know, five pounds of pot with me because I'm getting through. And, uh, <laughs> no, he, you know, he just wanted to talk baseball for a couple of minutes. And, uh, you know, I've got yeah. uh, I've got Clayton Kershaw, but I think I'm trading him, you know, and uh, you try to oh. give him your best <laughs> your best effort, and then off you go. It's a lot of fun. Well, I, it uh, you know, your story about customs, the same thing happened to me when I went to New York City for tow wars. I'm crossing the border, and the person behind me has to, had to have been absolutely terrified. But, yeah, the guy looked at me, and I told him I was going for tow wars. He says, well, I, I play in a league, and we spent five minutes talking baseball, okay? And the guy behind me must have been thinking, hey, man, they're tearing this guy apart. I better have all my stuff in order. But after about five minutes of talking baseball, he said, yeah, have a good time. Catch you later. Uh, yep. It was fun. It really was. It, it really is. So uh, before we talk about baseball ourselves, you live in Fort Francis, Ontario, which is someplace I'm sure that most of our listeners have never heard of. Where's Fort Francis and situated on the map, maybe relative to someplace in the U.S.? Well, if you Google nowhere and you go 100 miles north, that's pretty much where that's pretty much where I'm at. Google but Maps, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm about five hours straight north of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm right on the border with Minnesota. I can I can get into International Falls, Minnesota, from my house when the border's open in about oh three minutes. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of a different world in that. Uh, we get the both best of both for the most part. Uh, you know, hey, we have the curling rink and they have the movie theater. And there's a lot of, even though it's two countries, two communities, there's a lot of shared services because they're both smaller communities. So yep. uh, most of us here in Fort Francis are eagerly awaiting the end of the pandemic and a reopening of the border. There's a lot of, a lot of families that live between both communities and, like I said, we're, we're eagerly waiting for that border to be re reopened. I suppose in a situation like that, there'd be a lot of cross-border marriages and you'd get a lot of yep. kids born on both sides who are dual citizens. You know, I used to yep. work with a woman when I was in the, the banking business in the U.S., and she was born in, she was from Maine. She was an American, mm -hmm. but she was born in New Brunswick. And it was the same yeah. kind of thing. They had a kind of a smallish town just north of the border and an equally smallish town on the mm -hmm. south side. And they, they literally did the, all their banking in the Canadian one because there was no bank in the U.S. one. And the hospital yeah. was north of the border in Canada as well. But yeah, the, the, there was a school in the south. It was one of those things where the border didn't really exist. They had a like a guy at, uh, on Main Street standing there letting you in and out, but it, but it was really yeah. a laissez-faire. I imagine that's changed a lot over the last uh, you know twenty-five years uh -huh. or so. Yeah, it's changed a fair bit, but at the same point in time, there's still a lot of our backup ambulance service in the event of emergencies is the International Falls, and vice versa. Same with fire, in the event of uh, any sort of s serious incident. Yeah, we'll utilize both services back and forth. So the ties are still there. And going back, uh, I found just recently, 25, 30 years ago, our healthcare and our hospital was much better than the hospital in International Falls. So as a result, there were an awful lot of Americans born in the hospital here in Fort Francis at the time. Now, that has changed over the years. But again, that's sort of interesting. I, the guy that runs a grocery store or used to, uh, we talked, he was born in Canada. His yeah. parents just used the healthcare services. They paid for it, and away you go. So it, it's different, and I enjoy it, to be honest with you. It's 
it's a totally different world here. It really is. My mom and dad, uh, when uh, I had left the house and they moved out to the Vancouver area and finally they moved into a, a place east of Vancouver, but right next to the border. And it was just like your place. They could almost walk from their hometown to, uh, I forget the name of the little town, Linden, Washington, I think. And they used okay. to go and buy eggs and cheese there because they were so much cheaper. And mm-hmm. it gets so the border guard sees them coming and says, hey, Tom, hey, Kay, how you doing? Oh, f- good, Jimmy, how you doing? And stop and sh- shoot the breeze for a couple of minutes and go get their eggs and cheese and saunter on back. And Yeah, yeah. It, it's nice when two countries can live so amicably together. Not always, the, not always the case, of course. Well, yeah, and again, there's a lot of shared services. It, it works out very, very well. And I get what you're saying. I, a lot of the people at the border, you know them. You know, your kids went to school with them and you pull up to the border and it's like, hey, Tim, how's it going? And yeah, well, would you pick up? Okay, well, we'll catch you next time and away you go sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's cool. I like it. Well, how, how did you get into fantasy baseball and how long have you been doing it? Well, this is my 31st year and how I got into it back in the late 80s, I was running a convenience store uh, akin to 7-Eleven. It was a uh, a Mike's Mac store. Oh, and yeah, I remember one, them. Yeah, Max one of Mike. my, yeah, that's it. Yeah, one of my, uh, one of my, I was in a an area where there's a lot of college students, and they were always in all the time. We were always talking sports, this, that, and I said, well, one day, the one guy I knew fairly well came and said, hey, you heard about this new game. Would you be interested in playing? It's called Rotisserie Baseball. And I said, well, that sort of sounds cool. Why not Why not give it a shot? So uh, 10 of us got together and had ourselves a draft, and it just it just went from there, Patrick. It was sort of cool, thinking uh, back. on The first league, we actually, the, the rules, the, everything was manually calculated. Yep. And the rules were such that the one guy, and I'll never forget this, he traded a 10-speed for, I can't remember who the player was. <laughs> but uh, again, it was a very, very loose structure when it came to the rules. Very loose. That first league, Tim, was it an auction or a draft? Um, it was a draft. We didn't know what we were doing. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, it was easier to not know what you're doing when you're doing a draft than it is an auction. And it lasted for a couple of years. And from that, another league formed. And from that, uh, everything got rolling. I, In my experience here in Canada, getting into fantasy baseball usually was a draft experience first because so many of us played hockey pools. And that mm-hmm. was always draft. And now I think a lot of hockey pools are auctions because people realize that auctions are more challenging and interesting. But yeah, yeah. back in the day, I remember my first baseball draft was a was a, a a draft before I moved into the auction format. Say, do you remember who the very first player you took was? I don't remember the first player, but my first man crush was Carlos Bayarga. That oh, was yeah. Uh, yeah. I I was a big fan. I. One of the things that I did starting very, very early, and it's something that I'd recommend to all, all of the listeners out there, is I experimented. I tried different things. Uh, at that point in time, I wanted to learn about the game. And I, I would do silly things like uh, draft catchers early. I, I started drafting prospects in about 1993-94, looking at players who might get called up. And at that point in time, People didn't really look at prospects all that much. It wasn't a, 
a key a key point in playing the game and the more strategies i tried and the more the more experimentation i i think the more i learned about the game and as i progressed into uh further leagues auction leagues etc cetera, etc cetera, experimenting and working with different strategies and theories held me in good stead because it caused me to learn more about the game and i i think a lot of times today because there's so much information sitting there a lot of people forget that you got to sort of understand the game before you start plugging in all sorts of players and making a team so uh it was it was cool i i enjoyed i enjoyed those early years a lot I think it's interesting that uh, I had the same experience as you. I was a casual baseball fan. I I had yeah. I followed the Cincinnati Reds. I was a fan of them, and you know yeah. we didn't see them on TV as much then, of course, as we do now. You, you'd be lucky to see your team three or four times a year if it wasn't the Yankees or the Dodgers. And the the involvement in fantasy baseball, uh, you mentioned learning the game. I found it helped me to learn two games. I learned the game that I was playing, the fantasy baseball and figuring out where the opportunities were and those kinds of things, but also figuring out how baseball itself works. And it made me a much better, more aware fan of actual baseball, which has lasted, gosh, I got into it shortly after you, I guess, close to 30 years. And uh, I, f I find that I enjoy baseball more now because my fantasy baseball studying has made me a better, more aware fan of what's going on on the field. I, I found it so cool in the 90s when you started seeing TV uh, put whip up on the screen as a stat, you know, and I'd look at that and I'd say, hey, that's us. That's that's our stat. At one point in time, you never saw whip mentioned on a TV broadcast. No. And then they started introducing some of these stats. And as they introduced them, it sort of brought a smile to my face, knowing that, you know, maybe the tail was wagging the dog a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And pretty smart by them to do it, too, because, you know, the television networks are interested in gathering fans. And one thing you can say about fantasy baseball players, they're fans. And oh, yeah. if you give them a half a reason to join your broadcast, uh, as you said, some of them started talking about whip. I can remember uh, uh, seeing sportscasts, not so much live gamecasts, but where the sportscast would include... Uh, a mention of players who had done well the previous night from a fantasy perspective, and they'd actually highlight them. Yeah, no, uh, you're definitely right. And all you have to do is go to Arizona in the fall, and you'll see how rabid uh, baseball fans really are, Patrick. That's for sure. And I hope we get to do that again this year. Uh, what formats, what kind of leagues are you playing in these days, Tim? Uh, most of, most of what I play is a mixed rotisserie. 15 team is the predominant. I'm in toad. I'm in labor. I'm in the XFL TGF BI. I think if I got all the initials right on oh, that that's one right, yeah. and uh, a couple draft and holds, I was like doing a couple draft and holds early just to give me an idea of what's happening in the marketplace. Eh? So I do them in January, whatever, just to get primed up for you know, primed up for the regular season, but my, my principal leagues are tote and labor, definitely. And they're 15 team mix. Do you play anywhere for money? Uh, yeah, I play, uh, my draft and hole leagues are small entry 25. I play one league, uh, out of New York. That's a, a $400 entry. But other than that, uh, I, I'm, 
I don't consider myself to be an avid money player per se. I, I, I love the game. The money yep. is, yeah, I, I've seen money in, in the early years, the second league I was in, it ended up uh, folding over money issues and it left a, a bad taste in my mouth and one that I've never quite forgot. Money can sour things in a hurry, uh, Patrick, as far as I'm concerned. Boy, uh, you said a mouthful there. How are your teams doing so far this year? Uh, up, down, and all over the place. Uh, I'm sitting, I think, uh, sixth or fifth in labor, and I've got some underachievers, and uh, I like the team tote. Uh, I got a great offense. My pitching absolutely sucks. It's horrible. I've got four, as of this morning, I think I've got four ones in four of the five pitching categories. It didn't matter what happened there. It's just been, it's been a disaster. Uh, the rest of my leagues, I'm anywhere from first to worst, balanced all, all across the board, pretty much. It, no, they, no, no big trends other than uh, if you happen to get the right starting pitching, you're probably in pretty good shape. I don't know if that's a, a fair statement to make, but that's one that I'm seeing with my teams. If if you nailed the right pitching, you're in good shape. The bats, I think, have been a little bit more consistent, per se, than pitching. Yeah, and I think it's like that most years uh, that you're going to depend to a large degree on, on your pitching. I know that I have only three teams this year, and one of them's a no moves. It's a draft and hold type of situation. Right. But... The challenge was to get the right pitcher. And, of course, at the start of the year, there was a lot of discussion. Would you take Jacob deGrom first? Would you take Garrett Cole, uh, you know, ahead of Mookie Betts? Those kind of discussions. And it right. turns out that probably not a bad play. DeGrom's missed some time. But, gosh, Garrett Cole's been money in the bank. And and the, the, the real advantage, it seems, is you're getting those great ratios and such a large amount of innings, relatively speaking, that – it's a really a foundation for a successful team to have that kind of guy on your roster. Well, yeah, I've the teams that I'm doing extremely well in, uh, I've got Garrett Cole or I've got Trevor Bauer. Uh, Trevor Bauer has been another pitcher that's made a huge difference. And again, it's a situation where, you know, Trevor Bauer is going to get the work in the Dodgers aren't going to be shy about, uh, working him every fifth, maybe even at some point in time, every fourth day. Right. So, yeah, uh, if if you nailed the right pitchers that don't include Steven Strasburg, you're in pretty good shape. Do you have uh, Vladdy Guerrero on any of your teams? I have Guerrero uh, in two leagues. Uh, and I've also got him paired with uh, Ronald Acuna in both of those leagues. Wow. So I, I'm, I'm doing... I'm doing well in both of those leagues. Uh, uh, again, I play in four dynasty leagues, and I don't have either one in the dynasty leagues. Uh, you know, they keep keep forever. Uh, the one thing I did do with those leagues is I've got partners in all of them. Oh yeah. Okay, good friends, old friends, and I, I like playing. I like playing with a partner, and with my workload. It also allows me to partake in a higher volume of leagues, having partners that are willing to do a lot of the legwork in those dynasty leagues. So, hey, I know partners aren't for everybody, but I've had a lot of fun with it uh, over the years. 
I have too. I don't have partners currently, but I've had them before and it was a lot of fun because it gives you an excuse to sit around and talk about baseball like you needed one. And that's a big part of the fun. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Tim McLeod from the Prospects361.com website. And uh, Tim, the website also hosts a podcast, uh, Prospects 361 podcast, and on a recent edition I listened and you were talking about the surprising recent, I guess we could call it competence, of the Detroit Tigers up to, you know, they're not contending, I don't think, but they're at least heading in the right direction or so it seems. What did you see that made you optimistic about a team that could really use some optimism? Well, I, I think there are there are two things that bode well for their future. Uh, one being Casey Mize, the other being Tarek Scoobl. Uh I know Scoobl's been up and down, but I, I like the stuff. I think it's very real. I think he's a young pitcher that has uh, has some issues to work through. Casey Mize has been has been great. Uh, you know, we haven't even seen Manning yet. Uh, I think the future of that team is going to be based on uh, that young pitching and Torkelson and Green and. Uh, I think that's reason those four players alone are reason for Tiger fans to to get a little bit excited. I, I think they're going to have a very good rotation, and and two years down the road, I think uh, they're going to be a competitive team. Well, you mentioned Tariq Skubal, and I think he's still available in some leagues. Amant Mize is not, but are there any other Tigers in our free agent pools that you think we should be looking at? Uh, I don't think Robbie Grossman gets nearly the love that he should, especially uh, in OBP leagues. Uh, I've got him. Uh, I've got him in tote. And Grossman has been great this year. Yeah, you know, he's smacking the odd home run. He's stealing some bases. The OBP is solid. And again, uh, you know, the run scored could be better, but it's it's Detroit. You take it for what it's worth. But overall, a player like Robbie Grossman definitely has my definitely has my interest and Jonathan Scope's been heating up lately uh, he's somebody that I think people should be paying attention to because second base is still a bit of a wasteland isn't it it is yeah and he's eligible at first as well in case you need the position flexibility which I all of us like to have in uh, yes. formats where injuries are so common these days uh, you and your podcast co-host Rich Wilson were discussing Blake Snell and neither of you was uh, particularly optimistic at all what's your take on Blake Snell and how would you advise fans fantasy managers to have Snell on their rosters? Well, yeah, I went back and I took a little bit of a look. If you play in a quality start league, okay, you don't want to, you don't want to own this guy. You got to go back. His last good year, believe it or not, was 2018, maybe the first couple months of 2019, but one quality start this year. Okay. Uh, none last year. And I don't think he had any after July 21st, 2019. He's not going deep into games. And the promise that we saw in 2018, uh, as far as the walk rates, uh, he's just thrown too many pitches. And I don't know what the answer is. I know early on he was sent down a couple of times because of what I'll call incessant nibbling, you know, trying to throw the perfect pitch. 2018, he got away from that through strikes and was very successful. And it seems like he's gone back into that, uh, you know, let's let's get up to 90 pitches through four innings uh, syndrome, as I call it. And that's not a recipe for success. He, he's just got to simply throw more strikes, I think. 
Yeah, maybe he's worried there's something going on uh, that he doesn't like to throw strikes because he's worried he's going to get hit. And that uh, that, that's, that's a problem for a lot of pitchers. Well, yeah. There's guys in the field that play D, right? Well, that's the idea. <laughs> but no, no defending a home run, I guess. He was so, so good in 2018, of course, the Cy Young yeah. year. And the uh, promise has really evaporated, as it has, Tim, for Keston Hayura, another guy you guys were talking wow. about. Uh, he's re- really struggled. He got recalled a week or so ago and uh, batting uh, or OPSing 163. I was going to say batting 163. <laughs> uh, what's your advice for fantasy managers about Keston Hayura? Uh, well, you know, they sent him down, okay, and he was down for, what, a week or so, I think it was? Yeah, it wasn't any like great. Yeah, it wasn't any great length of time. They brought him back up, and lo and behold, no surprises, he's the same player he was when he went down. Okay. Well, there was a problem that forced him to send him down, and that problem hasn't been corrected. I think what I think what you're going to have to do is take the JD Martinez approach to the game, and I think what's what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to rework his mechanics in his swing, and you don't do something like that in a week. That's a long-term project, and I think he's going back down. I think in keeper dynasty leagues, yeah, you've got to, you got to hold on to them. But in redraft leagues, uh, I think it's time that you walked away. I think the work that he's going to have to do uh, as far as revising that swing and his mechanics, it's going to be a long-term project. And in a redraft league, we're a third of the way through the season. You don't have the time to be working with that, I don't think. You said on the podcast uh, that the recent extraordinary success of the Tampa Bay Rays, and I'm quoting you here, totally mystifies me. How come? Uh, well, I know you, you look at the everyday lineup, okay, and you you just look at look at it on paper, okay, and it doesn't look really all that great. You look at the pitching, and the pitching doesn't look on paper all that great. But at the end of the day. They're playing sound, fundamental baseball. They're playing a game of baseball that's that's winning for them. And, hey, I salute them. I, I say good for you. But from a fantasy perspective, you know, you got your openers. You got a different closer every day of the week. Uh, it's a bit of a nightmare from our side of our side of the game. And, again, hey, congratulations to the Rays. They're playing great fundamental baseball. They're not making a lot of mistakes. They're getting it done. And I just hope that at some point in time, and I don't know with their recent winning ways, we get a chance to see Wander Franco because I think it would be good not only for the Rays, I think it'd be good for the game of baseball. Well, you guys did discuss the Rays not bringing up Wander Franco or Vidal Bruhan, who's uh, really raking in the minors as well. And that led to you guys describing the team's approach to its minor league prospects as scary. And it seems to be working for Tampa. We have to admit that. So what's scary do you think about what they're doing? Well, again, it's money-driven, okay, and service time. Service time, money-driven. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think we're going to see – we might see Brujan, I think, before uh, before Franco after Super 2 in, in the middle of June. But, hey, the team's winning, so what's the incentive to bring these kids up? I think it'd be good for the game of baseball to see these kids up. But from Tampa Bay's per- perspective – like unless they sign extensions, which has been, you know, the key in the past, when you look at Longoria, when he was brought up and 
I, I don't know if Price, Price signed one, but uh, Brandon Lau signed a big extension. And I, I don't think, I don't think those two, the two young kids are going to sign that type of an extension. So when we see them, who knows? But I, I don't think it's good for the game when prospects who are basically deemed ready are left in the minors. Uh, you know, it, let's let's get on with the show. If the Jays took that approach, where where would uh, one of the best uh, hitters in the first two months of this year? Where would he be? He'd still be at what Buffalo, I guess. Well. Uh- Trenton, New Jersey, I think. Yeah, Trenton. Okay, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure where the, where the Jays uh, AAA uh, team is right now. Yeah, it's in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, we talked about this a week or two ago with Ugh. Ray Murphy and had a few laughs about. You, know, you yeah. think, yes, we're getting out of Buffalo, and then oh my God, we're going to Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's where the AAA team is playing for now, and I no, suppose okay. for the immediate future. But getting back to uh, the uh, uh, Bruhan and Wander Franco. I think the question that fantasy, uh, sorry, <clears throat> I think the question that fantasy managers want to get advice on is: should they be thinking about rostering uh, Franco or Bruhan now, in the expectation that they may get some value out of them down the road? But the question is, of course, if your reserve list is relatively limited, how much space do you want to devote to it on the off chance? Yeah. I, I... Hey, you got to buy in early on those guys and sit them. One of the problems this year is there have been so many injuries. Most reserve lists uh, are six or seven players. Well, uh, on a lot of my teams, I've been running. I've been running full ILs plus. I've been running two or three on my reserves. How much space do you have? And it's a legitimate question and a concern. Uh, of the two, the one that would interest me the most is Brujan simply because I think we're going to see him before Franco and he brings something to the game, our game that uh, Franco won't. And that's stolen bases. And I I think he could be a difference maker in the second half to a lot of teams with that stolen base potential. So yeah, I think you got to roster both or try your best to, but like I said, Bruzan is a guy that interests me. Uh, He can, he can make uh, he can make a, a three a three-point total in stolen bases, I think, into nine or ten points fairly quickly, uh, Patrick. That's the way it works these days. But what do you think of Taylor Walls, the kid that they brought up instead of either of those other two guys, who seems to be fitting in nicely? Well, he was on the 40, man. So, yeah, it, it worked. And again, hey, the Rays keep winning, right? So as they keep winning, the incentive to bring up these younger players versus keeping them down and having another year of service time, you know, hey, if the, if the Rays were under 500 right now, I think the incentive would be there. They're not. So there's no real big push right now. But again, I think you got to roster both of them. Uh, Walls has an interesting stat line in that his batting average is 194, which kills anybody who's playing in a batting average style league like Labor, but his on-base percentage is 342 which means he's yeah. a, actually a pretty good help in a league like Tout, which uses on-base percentage instead of batting average. Yeah, it's... Uh, and, again, I, I think Wall's a nice little player, but he's not of the caliber of the two sitting down on the farm, and he won't he won't make that sort of difference. In deeper leagues, yeah, as a middle infielder, uh, filling in for injuries, yeah, I think it works. But, again... You know, that 194 batting average, based on what we're seeing this year, it's not that bad. 
194 is the new 230 or something like that? Exactly, yeah. The uh, Mendoza line may have to be uh, recalibrated down to 160 or something like that to capture the right kind of guy. Having said all that about Walls, uh, only a 258 slugging percentage, and I think the knock on him as a prospect was, you know, decent hit tool, although he's not showing it, uh, good on base skills, Maybe yeah. a little speed, but uh, not not much else going on there. Uh, Rich asked you how you would manage having Marcel Ozuna in a dynasty league, given his recent legal troubles with what sounds like domestic violence, and you called that revolting, but then you guys had a discussion about how you would handle it as a fantasy manager. What did you decide? Uh, I, I can understand people wanting to cut Marcel Ozuna because of the circumstances. I think we're going to see a a situation much akin to Audible Herrera. Okay. Uh, In a redraft format, you can, you can cut Marcelo Zuna now. I don't think we're going to see him back this year at all. That's not going to happen. Uh, He's got what another three years after this year on that current contract in a dynasty format keeper format. Yeah, I I would hold on to him for now. Uh, but personally, if somebody were to cut him, I wouldn't have any issues with it. How's that? Based on the the morality of the situation. Uh, I think it's I think it's horrible. I, I you know, domestic abuse should not be tolerated. It's it, you know, it, it it really sickens me, Patrick. And, you know, like I said, hey, I know we play our game and our game is based on numbers and stats, et cetera, et cetera. So I get, I get holding on to it much the same as Robert, Roberto Osuna, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the only way he's rosterable right now is in a dynasty or a keeper format. Yeah. When you raise the moral or ethical concerns about it, that is yeah. something that uh, does cause a lot of anxiety, I think, among fantasy managers where they look at a guy and they think, well, you know, I don't like what he's doing in his private life. But, and I think there's a certain amount of rationalizing, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not involved with him because of his private life, but increasingly because of the way society is moving, private life incidents like that are moving into the scope of what we think of them on the field, even though it's obviously not taking place on the field. Right. Yeah. Our private life has changed an awful lot, hasn't it? With the advent of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. The definition of private has changed very much, hasn't it, in the past 10, 15 years? It it definitely has. And, and I think that is something else that augurs towards this question that people have about where where is the dividing line between a player's private life and what he does off the field versus how I can feel about having him on a roster based on what he does on the field. And those lines are getting, I think, wider and more blurry all the time. I agree, Patrick. I totally agree. You guys also discussed in the podcast the idea of whether leagues should change their uh, IL rules or their reserve rules or both to reflect the new reality of so many injuries in the game. Uh, What did you guys come down on or decide if you decided anything? What was your point of view? Well, my, my point of view on that one is we play the game so we can play it, okay? And right now we're seeing just a, a horrendous number of injuries between the COVID IL and it seems like every day there's a shoulder, a hamstring, there's something going. And when you lose a player, uh, you're punished, okay? If you can't replace that player, 
you're double. It's like double jeopardy. So um, I'm of the mindset that I want to play the game. And I think it's good that we can play the game. So I'm all up on unlimited ILs. And I think pending the format, I think you're going to see more and more weekly leagues going to daily ups and downs. Okay. Now, I'm not talking about adding players or fab. I, I like weekly fab. But at the same point in time, there's got to be a vehicle. And, and I know Tote Wars has that vehicle where if somebody gets injured on a Tuesday, if you've got somebody on your bench, sub them in. I, I, think, the, I think the key issue is we got to be able to play the game. And with more and more injuries, it limits the you know the the way we can actually play it, and that's not good for our game. So I I think we've got to look at expanded IL slots, uh, possibly daily moves, anything that allows us to keep playing rather than sitting there. Nothing worse than on a Tuesday afternoon your rosters are blocked, and you got three teams announcing that three players are going on the IL. You got them all active. You're sitting with three dead spots for a week. That's not good for our game, I don't think, Patrick. No, and it seems to introduce an element of luck that we're oftentimes we accept that there's luck involved in the game, but we like to think of the game as being prim primarily based on skill and acumen about baseball and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. But the counter argument that I've heard from people here on the show and just talking about yeah. fantasy baseball in general is maybe our acumen about the players and player skills needs to be extended to include how do you value in the injury risk and and if you don't like having guys who get hurt on your roster don't draft guys who get hurt yeah and i can see that argument but we don't know you know we've seen players this year incur injuries that have been relatively injury free for the bulk of their careers so i you know hey you take a look at a guy like Alberto Mondesi okay well yeah he's got a he's got a history when you draft or buy him in an auction, you're assuming you're assuming a level of risk. But what do you do with a Jack Flaherty, who's never missed a day since he's been in the league? You can't build that in. That is pure luck, karma, whatever you want to call it. You know, those injuries, you have no control over them. And again, my my train of thought is when we start limiting the game and how and the opportunity to play the game, it's not it's not a good we got we got to got to find a way to keep keep players interested and and play in the game keeps them interested you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick david with tim mcleod from prospects361.com and tim at the site you write a weekly waiver pickups column uh, uh, recently you recommended a prospect pitcher in kansas city jackson cower i think his name is uh, why do you like this young pitching prospect in kansas city well, I think when you look at Kansas City, Kansas City has never been shy the past couple of years about bringing up prospects. Okay, we've seen Daniel Lynch this year. It didn't work out. Um, Brady Singer, Bubik, they're all young pitchers, and Kansas City has moved on them. This year, Cower, you know, Duffy's out for a while. Uh, Cower, I believe, and this is off the top of my head, he's now pitched in six games, and he's allowed a total of three earned runs. His last start was on Wednesday night, I believe, and he threw five innings of one-hit, one-walk uh, baseball. His ERA is sub-one. Uh, kid's got a good fastball. I have a class fastball, 92-94. Great change-up. He's 24 years old, and 
it's time we saw him. And I, I think a lot of people aren't realizing how good a season he is really having. And I'd, I, I'm very aggressive when it comes to Fab, Patrick. I, I would rather pay a buck now than get into a fight with seven people two weeks down the road where it's going to cost me 20 of my $100. So I just think we're going to see him soon based on his level of success, what the Royals are doing as an organization. And I think now's the time to buy cheap. Also in Kansas City, Tim, you touted Kyle Zimmer as a replacement for the injured reliever Josh Stomont. Uh, why Zimmer over some other options in the Kansas City pen? Uh, there's a slew of options, and I think obviously they're using a committee a committee approach right now. Uh, most of the other most of the other options were fairly well known. Zimmer, yeah, you know, for the veteran player, you know, failed starter, dealt with a pile of injuries. The stuff is still good. I just wanted to bring people, uh, make people aware of the fact that he he's still out there, and he has a couple saves in deeper leagues. Uh, why not toss a dart? Yeah, you know, when you start looking at the number of closers and the closer the closers we've gone through this year, the turnover is unbelievable. And I just saw Zimmer as being in a situation where he could garner you a few saves over the next few weeks with great peripherals. I was really interested in Kyle Zimmer after I heard you say that, so I started following him a bit, just not following him around like a dog or anything, but you know, keeping right. an eye on him. And I noticed that in the first couple of appearances since you made the recommendation, they brought Zimmer into games in quite high leverage situations, that runners yeah. aboard, but it was always in right. the sixth inning or the seventh inning, so there's no or limited saves potential there. How do you think we should adjust our saves expectations for a guy like Kyle Zimmer when we see him always coming in in the sixth or the seventh because they're playing the leverage game rather than the closer game, and it's still such a small sample? There's a lot of information to sift there. Yeah, the key for me is he's pitching well, okay, uh, in whatever situation the Royals have been uh, inserting him into, you know, into, into games. And I think if you're looking at a handful of saves – I think that's a reasonable expectation. If you're looking at 25 saves over the balance of the year, I think that's an unreasonable expectation. So well, when you start looking at, you know, you want to throw him out there or Amir, Amir Garrett, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's there, there's an opportunity for a handful of saves. And who knows how long Stonemont's going to be out for. I haven't heard anything real definitive. So, uh Again, I just saw an opportunity for great peripherals and the odd save. If you combine 2020 and 2021, uh, Kyle Zimmer in Kansas City, 184 ERA, 096 whip. That's getting yep. the job done, and that's helping your it team, is. even if the saves are limited. Well, yeah. When when you start looking at what's happening with pitching this year, uh, I, I think uh, – I think we're going to see as we approach the second half, I think we're going to see more fantasy teams rostering set up guys and having them active uh, middle relievers. Uh, innings are going to be controlled this year. They're going to be hard to come by. Do you want to start uh, a shaky starter that could uh, destroy your ERA whip? Or do you want to find, I think, looking at Oakland, I think Pettit has, what, seven wins? Yes, I have him on my Tout Wars roster, of a rare bright spot, I may say. <laughs> good good for you. But uh, again, I think we're going to see more of those players along with the Zimmers rostered as we get into the second half. And 
we just simply run out of pitching options. Uh, some of these setup guys could be very, very strong options. And uh, my train of thought there goes back to Scott Shields back in the day. Uh, there, There's value in middle relievers. There really is. And I think it's a part of the game that not enough people take the time to recognize that value and utilize it. Yeah, you know, I'm old enough that I go back to having had uh, Arthur Rhodes in Seattle uh, one year who yeah. helped me win a, a league, actually, because I think he had 10 or 11 wins and the decimals were all like started with zero ERA and, and whip, as I recall it. But of course, yeah. at my age, I recall things inaccurately most of the time. <laughs> uh, I can relate to that. Yeah, most of my recollections tend to be very positive in my own direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But one thing I do remember, Yusmero uh, uh, Pettit, uh, yeah. just sailing along like gangbusters, and then just the other day uh, gave up three earned runs in two-thirds of an inning and just looked terrible. So I, I, I don't know, you know, pitchers, what are you going to do? Uh, your latest yeah. waiver wire watch came out on Thursday of this week. Who are a couple of low ownership hitters that you're recommending? Uh, looking looking at this week, uh, Jonathan Scope, last seven games, three homers, five RBIs, and a 409 batting average. Uh, you look at uh, Minnesota and the injury to Mitch Garver, which is going to keep sidelined for a while. They brought up Ryan Jeffers, and I was really bullish on Jeffers heading into the season. It didn't work out according to plan, but since getting recalled, he had a homer last night. He's got a couple RBIs, four for eight. In deeper leagues, uh, two catcher sets, uh, I'd, be looking at, uh, I'd be looking at Ryan Jeffers, uh, Patrick. How about a couple of pitchers? Well, uh, Jonathan Loezaga in New York, he's got three wins. Peripherals are great. A couple saves. Uh, He's the sort of pitcher that, you know, he's going to get you the odd win. He's going to get you the odd save. Great strikeout rate. And then start looking at, uh, I'm really starting to like Vladimir Gutierrez in Cincinnati. Uh, Moving forward, you know, he's had two solid starts to start his career. Uh, and he's got back-to-back starts coming up against the Brewers over the next couple of weeks. So Gutierrez is a pitcher, I think, that's worthwhile to take a look at right now. Well, Tim, this has been fantastic information. Let's take a break so we can get to our National League news and uh, American League news with Nick and Ray. Go grab yourself a cold beverage, and we'll resume in a few minutes. Uh, warm up the coffee, Patrick. Thanks a bunch. Tim McLeod writes and podcasts regularly for Prospect361.com, and he'll be back for part two of our discussion later in the show. We'll take that break right now. We'll be back with those Market Watch Player News reports. Nick and Ray coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Tim McLeod writes and podcasts regularly for Prospect361.com. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League news next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Mike Werner assesses performance by five American leaguers, including Baltimore first baseman Trey Mancini and Boston left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez. 
In Playing Time Tomorrow, a couple of interesting notes. Analyst Matt Dodge looks at players who are forcing the conversation on the rosters of the five teams in the American League Central, like Edward Olivares. I'll be asking Ray about him and the crowded Detroit outfield. And Jock Thompson looks at five June flyers on the rosters of American League West teams, including left-hander Jose Suarez in Los Angeles and outfielder Greg Diekman in Oakland. And we have our watch list, where our scouting team looks at prospects who aren't regularly featured in top prospect columns. Scouting analyst Alec Dopp looks at some early season gems with three pitchers, including Tampa right-hander Joe Ryan, also the subject in this week's edition of Alex Becky's Frequent Flyer comment coming up later in the show, and three hitters, including Cleveland infielder Tyler Freeman. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers, and there's more. Add it all up, there's expert content, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Dickels. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Pittsburgh where they could use some good news and they got some. On Thursday, they activated third baseman Kibrian Hayes from the injured list. He'd been out for quite a while with a wrist problem. He played right away and had a pretty good night. Rick Green for playing time today. Of course, this is good news for Cabrian Hayes, uh, fantasy managers, but bad news for whom? Bad news for anyone with Eric Gonzalez or Wilma Defoe on their rest- rosters. Rick projects him to lose 5% of the uh, plate appearances they were previously projected for. Hayes gets a 10% bump. Hayes came back on Thursday night, as you said, went two for four, scored a run from the second slot in the batting order where most teams now put their best hitters. So it looks like Pittsburgh thinks all systems are go. Hayes, of course, came into this year as a heavy favorite to win the National League Rookie of the Year Award after he slashed 376, 442, 682 last September with seven doubles, two triples, five home runs, and 11 RBIs in only 24 games. Yeah, if you prorate that out to 160 games, all of a sudden it looks very, very promising, a 40 home run sort of pace, and 90 RBIs, and... Uh, the lineup in Pittsburgh, Nick, is not a help to anybody trying to amass counting stats, even a, as good as Cabrian Hayes could be. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, you know, there, there's not, he doesn't have a lot around him, but uh, he'll certainly stand out in that lineup. And the problem, of course, is uh, will, will they begin to pitch around him, given that there's nothing else to back him up? This year, his slash line is even better than it was uh, in September of last year, 333, 455 on-base percentage, 889 slugging percentage. That's a 1343 OPS, but everybody should calm down. It's only in three games, but uh, must activate, I'm sure we're going to agree, in all formats. Absolutely. 
In Miami, the Marlins finally activated right-handed starting pitcher Eliezer Hernandez from the 60-day injured list. They gave him a start on Thursday night. He'd been out for a couple of months with bicep soreness. And, of course, anytime we hear about bicep soreness, Nick, or forearm soreness, we immediately start to worry about elbow problems. Uh, Phil Hertz is on the story for playing time today. Uh, fill us in on the latest on Eliezer Hernandez. Most fantasy managers should be familiar with Hernandez. He's a top-rated pitching prospect who broke out in 2020, but his 2021 season got off to a rocky start. Only one outing in early April, and then that biceps injury shelved him for two months. First came up in 2018, had little success until the abbreviated 2020 season. Hit a 3.16 ERA, 3.51 XERA, over six starts in 25.2 innings. Of particular note, he had a, a strikeout rate of 32%, a walk rate of just 5%, making for a stellar uh, strikeout minus walk rate of 27%. Great promise, but uh, baseball issues Greg Pyron reviewed his 2020 performance at the start of 2021 spring training and noted that he still needs some improvements before he can be relied on. Among other things, Greg noted that Hernandez relied heavily on just two pitches during 2020. And that is a matter for concern, of course, because, uh, you know, two pitches will get you through a, a couple of times through the lineup. But, uh, you know, they figure it out if they keep seeing the same things over and over again. Uh, how did he do uh, Thursday night uh, in that start against Pittsburgh? Not bad. Five innings, one earned run, solo home run by Brian Reynolds. Just three hits in all, two by Reynolds and one by Brian Hayes. Six strikeouts, 10 swinging strikes, 14 looking, no walks. Only 68 pitches, so clearly they're easing him in, but it was a reassuring performance by Hernandez. He left the game tied one all, so no chance for a win, but his fantasy managers will probably be activating him ASAP. Yeah, I'm one of those fantasy managers. I, I had him activated for this start because I saw this coming, and uh, it's getting to that stage in the in the sort of history of fantasy baseball where you have to start looking uh, a little bit ahead to try to get any edge you can. Uh, one cautionary note, 13 balls in play for Eliezer Hernandez against Pittsburgh. Nine of them were fly balls, and sometimes that can be a problem. Yeah, but overall a reassuring performance. Moving on, in Washington, more bad news for Steven Strasburg, uh, the starting pitcher. He goes to the IL. This was covered by Phil Hertz in playing time today. What's the latest bad news for Steven Strasburg? This will mark his 10th trip to the IL, uh, second this season in his 12-year career. And while the injury was clearly enough to put him on the IL, the Nationals were still awaiting results from orthopedic tests to determine the seriousness of this latest issue. We made a downward adjustment in his projected innings, but it wouldn't be a surprise to see additional reductions. Uh, so far, Strasburg has been bad this season. He has a 5.15 XERA, 15% walk rate. that's double his previous career low walk rate. And with Strasburg out, it appears either Austin Voss or Eric Fed should become regular members of the Washington rotation. Voss has a 3.84 XERA and 94 BPB, over 27.2 innings in relief. He's yet to start a game in 2021 but he started 21 times in his career. Uh, Fed is close to coming off the IL. He started eight games in 2020 before hitting the IL, recording a 4.39 XERA. It wouldn't be surprised to see both of them get shots in the rotation, given the struggles of every Washington starter not named Scherzer. And the weird thing about this, it's a neck injury. How does it, I don't know how a neck injury can be so problematic for a pitcher, but it seems like it is pretty problematic for Steven Strasburg. Yeah, it sounds like it. I, you know, I, I don't know anything really about about neck injuries. I wonder if it has anything, if it reflects down the back and causes back problems as well. It's uh, really hard to tell. But having talked with uh, 
having been having had back problems myself and been to the doctor with things I thought were leg injuries and being told they were back injuries. Uh, you know, I, I maybe that's part of the part of the uh, the issue. Yeah, we've talked before about the whole idea of the kinetic chain, and maybe the uh, arm starts to hurt, so you start trying to pitch in a slightly different manner with your different mechanics and all of a sudden now that puts extra strain on your legs and it works its way up into your back and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you're exactly right that this is actually a back problem that sort of manifested itself as a neck problem once it finally got up to that stage. Yeah that's certainly possible anyway so hopefully this will not be a serious problem for Steven Strasberg but uh, you know here's a guy who goes on the DL a lot so uh, hard to tell what the result might be. Yes, uh, if you had a map of all the injuries that Steven Strasburg has suffered through over his career, there'd be a lot of red dots, I think, on that map. Uh, in Milwaukee, uh, Lorenzo Kane has been sent to the injured list because of a hamstring injury, which has been nagging him for quite a while. Um, well, who benefits with Lorenzo Kane going to the injured list? Jackie Bradley will see a, the bulk of the playing time in center field in Kane's absence, with Tyrone Taylor rejoining Milwaukee from AAA in a reserve role. Bradley currently is showing career lows in expected batting average, contact rate, walk rate, line drive percentage. Ground ball approach is going to cap his power production. Taylor is shuffled between AAA and Milwaukee, getting promoted as Milwaukee has encountered various uh, outfield injuries, uh, also showing subpar plate skills and a low batting average. Right now, we're projecting uh, 10% playing time gain for Bradley, a 15% playing time loss for Lorenzo Cain. In Cincinnati, boy, Nick Senzel was playing so well. He was right up at the top of a lot of offensive categories. Uh, everybody was thinking, well, finally, Nick Senzel is finding his place in the world, and then all of a sudden he has to have surgery. Uh, no, I don't know how long he's going to be out. Maybe you do, but uh, this was covered uh, earlier this week by Tom Kephart in Playing Time Today. What's the sad story with Nick Senzel? Nick Senzel had arthroscopic knee surgery on Friday, May 28th. Uh, no timetable for his return. He's been on the IL for nearly a week, likely to miss uh, roughly two months of action as the injuries continue to limit his ability to realize his speed power uh, mix upside. Rookie second baseman Jonathan India and left-handed batter uh, Taylor Naquin are the primary playing time winners in his absence. Naquin is playing career best power skills while starting against right-handers. His pedestrian contact rate and lack of line drive to combine keep his XBA at about his career XBA level, despite the, the recent power surge this season. India has cooled off after a hot start, uh, though he is showing very solid plate skills, and while his speed gives him stolen base upside, power limited by his heavy ground ball rate, however. Well, it's bad news, and it is too bad. Uh, over in St. Louis, earlier this week, we had a story in Playing Time today that Jack Flaherty was going to the injured list. It wasn't quite sure at the time uh, who was going to get the replacement. Now Phil Hertz has updated the story. What's the latest from the St. Louis rotation? Uh, Johan Oviedo was recalled from AAA Memphis uh, on Tuesday. Uh, it seems that he has been a regular feature of our Playing Time today discussions as he would start a game for the Cardinals, get sent to Memphis. Find his way back to St. Louis within 10 days. This time his trip to St. Louis may be longer, with Flaherty hitting the I.L. with a very significant injury. For the most part, Oviedo has been struggling with the Cardinals with his control being a major issue. He has a 5.75 XERA over 20 innings with a walk rate of 15%, strikeout minus walk rate of only 1%. Uh, he does get an 8D rating from the uh, prospect team and has gotten rave reviews from Cardinal manager Mike Schultz. So, Oviedo might be an option for fantasy teams looking in the future, 
or with some room on their reserve list. Or perhaps just who need to throw a dart at somebody trying to get some innings and hoping for the best. Yeah, that's possible too. Uh, staying in St. Louis, uh, their bullpen has been a surprise of sorts, especially the way that it's structured. But uh, in playing time tomorrow, Dan Marcus covers the National League Central, and he looked at all five teams. And among his coverage, he talked about some new arms that have showed up in that St. Louis bullpen, and they're getting the job done. They are. The back end of the bullpen has been very steady to start the season, thanks in large part to Alex Reyes's emergence as the team's closer. In fact, he's been perfect 15 for 15 in safe situations, recorded all but four of the teams saved at this point in the campaign, despite some underlying metrics that suggest this type of success can't continue. 21% walk rate, 4.75 XCRA. Uh, his success means he's likely to, he'll likely have to undergo very, very, very extreme struggles before he's going to move out of the role. Even so, it's worth noting to some other young bullpen arms in St. Louis, Genesis Cabrera was in the headlines for his unfortunate an unintentional loss of command earlier in the season. He's since experienced plenty of success. Ranked second on the team and holds behind Giovanni Gallegos and has the metrics. 15% strikeout minus walks, 97 uh, mile an hour, uh, 1.07 leverage index. Junior Fernandez could be the next most promising arm to take a step forward in St. Louis. Early on in the campaign, he bounced between AAA Memphis and St. Louis. Struggled with walks and home runs through 18.1 career innings in the majors, 11.6% walk rate, 1.47 home runs per nine. But a solid 8D prospect, recently recalled to the major league team, he's been limited to extremely low leverage roles so far, 0.16 leverage index at this point, but he can see his role expand as the season progresses. Uh, Cody Whitley is another young arm worth monitoring, though he just went to the IL with a back injury, so unclear how long he'll be sidelined at this point. And we should say that that uh, prospect rating of 8D is a, it's a pretty good ceiling, but a limited chance of achieving the ceiling. So don't think that you're getting, you know, another Mariano Rivera here. Right. Absolutely. And finally, Nick, uh, one of our favorite columnists, Ryan Bloomfield at BaseballHQ.com writes the speculator column every week. And, and this week he wrote about, uh, everybody can have a bad week. I think the title of the article was, and these are pitchers whose stats for the year, have been ruined by bad stats in one outing. Take out the one outing, all of a sudden they look pretty good. And perhaps the headline character on this analysis is Austin Gomber, who had a kind of a bad uh, bad outcome named after him. Yeah, getting Gomber is now a thing after he gave yeah. up nine earned runs and 1.2 innings pitched at San Francisco on April 26th. Um, that was his first start of a two-start week. Uh, so a slam dunk choice, as he said, for this column. Not just because of the bad outing, but it's still since then. Listen to this. 24% strikeout minus walk rate, 3.35 XERA, 171 BPV. Those skills have been among the best in baseball. Still just a streaming option on the road. He needs to rack up more strikeouts to be much more than that. But, uh, you know, he's been pitching very well. I believe last night in Colorado went six innings, gave up one earned run uh, in Coors Field. So uh, he's getting a bad rap because of the uh, infamous gombering but uh, someone who may still be on your waiver wire. He might indeed, Nick, and it raises a question I'd like to discuss with you just for a minute, and that is how applicable do you think this idea is that if you just take out that one start, then everything looks much rosier than it did before? Because uh, I was talking about this once with Chris Liss from Rotowire, and his point of view was 
that start happened. It's part of his record and you can't ignore it. And it raises the possibility that sometime down the road, there's going to be another one just like it. And so you can't just say, well, it was just the one thing. We'll just ignore it because it happened. Yeah, it did. It did happen. And what it, you know, what it does for me, I think as a, as a, uh, as a fantasy manager is to, to look at what were the circumstances around that start? Are we looking at uh, an extreme home road split, for example? Uh, and did that happen in the one bad part of the, uh, it says, okay, I don't want to start him when he's pitching on the road or don't want to start him when the team, is, team he's facing our heavy left-handers or something like that. Because there may be some conditions under that start. That you could say, okay, I'll keep him out when that happens again. So uh, yes, you're right. You can't take it out. It happens. If it happens to me as a manager, I'm likely to say you're gone, but uh, it's certainly worth noting that one start really destroys those surface stats. And that's when we have to look under them and see what are we really looking at here in terms of skills. Uh, and that's, I think, the most important thing. What was really remarkable about the start, nine earned runs in an inning and two thirds, as you mentioned, no home runs. That was the weird thing about it to me. Usually you see a nine earned run performance in a limited number of innings. There's been a grand slam or there's been, you know, two, three run homers or something like that. But no, they just, uh, seven hits and four walks. And it just, sometimes it's the sequence of things rather than the, the actual things that happened. Right. Uh, I talked about this with Todd Zola last week and I asked him about it and he says, it's as simple as this, uh, hit, walk, homer, bad. Homer hit walk, not so bad. Right. And the other thing to remember with a pitcher is 1.2 innings pitch. So what I don't know in looking at that nine earned runs was the situation when he left the game. Were the bases loaded? And right. the, the guy who came in to replace him gives up a hit, and suddenly there you know, there's three more earned runs to tack on to the six that were already there. Uh, you know, It's hard to tell, especially with a pitcher who has not completed an inning before he's taken out. Yeah, I never thought of that, but it's a really good point. And anybody who is looking to assess the impact of that particular outing, as far as we know, he, as you said, he could have left the game with the bases loaded and the next guy comes in and gives up a grand slam and there's three runs just added to the tally. I mean, it's still a six-run outing in an inning and two-thirds, so nobody's going to mistake it for a vintage Kershaw or, or anything like that. And it's worth noting also in a outing, I think last week against Pittsburgh, had four innings and gave up a couple of runs and, you know, had to leave the game early. But overall, his uh, PQS scores have been pretty solid, a bunch of fours and a couple of twos since that uh, terrible outing in San Francisco. So sometimes you have to not only look at, can you take the bad outing out of the picture, which I'm dubious about, I have to say, Nick, but what has been the trend since the bad outing? And in this case for Austin Gomber, it's been, you know, not outstanding, but certainly much better than it was before that. Yes, very definitely. And the other thing, the other question that I ask in that kind of situation is why didn't the manager take him out earlier? Why leave him in to keep getting blasted that way? when he clearly didn't have anything that night in terms of his stuff. Yeah, and again, this is something where you'd really have to go back and look at the game uh, batter by batter because it may be that he wasn't getting blasted. You know, he, maybe he got a couple of walks on bad calls by the umpires or borderline pitches that he just didn't get. 
uh, maybe the, he gave up seven hits. We assume that they were all blasts, you know, that somebody was really pummeling him. But for all we know, two bleeders, you know, a swinging bunt up the third baseline, those kinds of things happen as well. And you, you have to kind of factor all that in. In fact, as fantasy baseball gets more and more uh, dependent on information advantages that are harder and harder to find, maybe this is something that we really have to start looking at when a pitcher that, generally speaking, we have pretty positive feelings about has a terrible outing like this, maybe it's incumbent upon us to just go and dig in and find out really what happened on a, on a pitch by pitch or batter by batter basis, rather than just looking at the numbers and saying, oh my gosh, seven hits, four walks, nine and runs. He got clobbered because maybe maybe he was, but and probably he was, but maybe not. You're right, absolutely. It's, uh, that's the kind of information that can be extremely valuable for for a fantasy manager that isn't always uh, out there unless you go and look for it. Well, I'll tell you what, I am going to go look for it, and I'll report back in my extra innings comment at the end of this show. How's that? Sounds good. Thanks, Nick. Talk to you again next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, PD. Let's start in Minnesota, one of the clips of the season so far, and not in a good way, catcher Mitch Garver had finally turned his season around. He was batting, I think, around 190 through mid-May, and then in the last 10 or so games, he had really uh, hit his stride, a 360 batting average, a 1356 OPS, I looked this up, and then uh, infamously, he got hit squarely in that place that shall never be mentioned on a family podcast, but he did go on the IL after surgery for what the team delicately called a groin contusion and what the rest of us called, oh, he'll be out yeah, for a while. Yeah, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> uh, the team recalled uh, catcher Ryan Jeffers, and you'll remember, I'm sure, Ray, I think we might even have talked about it, that the there was some scuttlebutt before the season in Toutdom that Ryan Jeffers could supplant Mitch Garver because of Garver's, you know, relatively poor performances coming in, and, and Ryan Jeffers was everybody's favorite guy, and he just uh, stank out the joint. Rick Green covering all of this. How does the catcher position shake out? Yeah, this will be interesting to watch for the next several weeks. Like you said, there were sort of two camps in the preseason about whether, Je- you know, Jeffers is clearly the heir apparent to that position, but whether the, f- the future was now sort of was the, was the, was the question. And, uh, you, know, Gar- you know, Jeffers started out the season – on the roster, splitting time with Garver. And like you said, stunk out the joint for, I don't know, 25 or 30 at bats, not a significant sample. And then they sent him down to get playing time in the minors when AAA opened up. And that seemed to, you know, not coincidentally be when Garver got his bat going, when Jeffers kind of got out of the picture. Um, I remember having a conversation with uh, Brent Tershey, my co-general manager, probably around that time when he was actually thinking about getting away from Garver because he was neither playing full-time nor hitting and was going to look for catcher alternatives. And I was kind of the, the Mitch Garver guy this preseason in though in that debate. I was like, you know, I, I expected Jeffers needed more minors seasoning time. And I really liked Garver's chances to shake off the lost 2020 and get back to the um, top catcher. He was in 2019. So I have Garver all over the place and, Basically, that means I was wincing for more than one reason when this happened. Um, but when, um, in terms of what happens from here, it's going to be interesting because 
Jeffers now gets an opportunity to be the lead guy. We're not quite sure for how long. You know, certainly surgery implies it's going to be more than a 10-day DL stint for Garver. Uh, the team is saying they believe it's going to be less than 60 days. They're not putting him on the 60-day DL. So we're somewhere between 11 and 60 days for Jeffers to run with this job, right? And he hit a home run on Wednesday night in his first night in the lineup. So, uh, you know, I, I think Garver was doing too well to be out at risk of being outright Wally pipped here. But at the same time, uh, it, Jeffers has a chance to stake a claim and, you know, fast forward his timeline and establish himself as the uh, the catcher of the future over the next few weeks and say that he demonstrate that he's ready for that role now and force some hard decisions, I guess, is probably the best thing he can do. Meanwhile, uh, Williams Astadio in the past has done some catching for the Twins. Yeah, I think he lost the eligibility uh, over the last couple of years, but uh, any chance that he catches enough at least to get uh, eligible in five-game leagues? Yeah, I think there is a chance of that. He's uh, you know, They were carrying Rob Roosevelt, who was the backup to Gar- Garver, and Astadio had uh, snuck behind the plate uh, a couple of times already, and that probably figures to continue uh with uh, with Jeffers in the lead role now, uh, looking it up now, Astadio's already caught nine times this year, so he's yeah. actually on the verge of uh, picking up eligibility even in ten game week. So yeah, you, you know you'll get the benefit of the catcher eligibility, but you know he doesn't just play at catcher. You know they move move him around the field. He's already got 101 at bats this year, so that ends up becoming a you know a guy who has catcher eligibility only if he pops back there once or twice a week. So he'll be playable in a lot of formats with that eligibility. Staying in Minnesota, utility man Rob Refsnyder was the star of the uh, injury highlight that would have been the worst of the week for Minnesota had it not been for Garver. A Refsnyder very uh, famously and widely viewed uh, incident just absolutely full sprinted into the outfield fence chasing uh, what turned out to be a home run uh, and got himself a concussion. He's on that seven-day concussion list. And usually that's a little longer, especially if you see the highlight. It looked like Usain Bolt running into the side of the uh, of a of a building or something like that. It really was shaken up. They recalled outfielder Gilberto Celestino from Double A, and he started in center field on Wednesday. Uh, Celestino, I looked him up on Baseball HQ scouting team's preseason organization list. He was the team's number thirteen prospect coming into the year, but I really hadn't heard much about him since. Uh, what are the ramifications here as far as Gilberto Celestino is concerned, and other options that they have in center field? Yeah, this is probably going to be a mix and match for a while, and they're still waiting on Byron Buxton, who's coming along slowly. Obviously, center field is his gig. Um, but boy, yeah, right, you're, first of all, you're right about that uh, Ref Snyder highlight. That was, you know, shades of like Wiley Coyote running into the canyon, right? Yeah. Um, well, into the wall which, thinking there's a tunnel there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, the, but the tunnel was only painted on. That's yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that, that was a rough one. But, you know, Celestino, like you said, not, you know, he, he wasn't on our top prospect list, but, you know, we, there even in a in a decent org there, we thought that he had a chance to be a um, you know a future starter in center field based on both the hit tool and his defensive skill. You know he's a true center field uh, you know speedster type. Um, he was, I mean, he was hitting two fifty with a three forty four on base percentage and a couple of home runs in double A. Uh, you, you know, so that doesn't translate particularly well for the short term. You know, he's probably a a project I wouldn't you know with, with some long term potential and some maybe a stash for dynasty leaguers. I wouldn't expect. Uh, too much in the near term while we're waiting for Buxton, though. 
Yeah, that preseason scouting blurb, I saw that as well, and it said his profile, the analyst, whoever it was, and I didn't catch the name, uh, said the profile's not fantasy-centric because it is glove first and a, and a good batting average tool, but not a lot of extra base power, not a lot of, you know, kind of guy who might score some runs for you but probably won't drive in a million. Uh, so probably bid with caution would be my advice. Uh, the Angels put Jose Quintana, left-handed starting pitcher. Boy, he's had a tough year. He goes on the 10-day IL because of shoulder inflammation, and they recalled a left-hander named Jose Quijada from AAA Salt Lake. Uh, Jock Thompson covers this story for playing time today. What's going on here with the Angels? Yeah, boy, for the hopefully there aren't too many Jose Quintana owners out there, but after uh, 26 walks and 34 innings, I can only imagine his owners screaming, of course he's hurt. I knew that weeks ago. Thanks for finally putting him on the DL, right? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> But the Angels have finally obliged. And uh, yeah, uh, Jose, Jose Suarez is in the mix here, but um, and Patrick Sandoval is too. Um, they've both pitched pretty well with small samples. Sandoval's got a 380 ERA through 21 innings in spot start slash swingman work. And Suarez has only thrown nine innings, but has two runs allowed. Um, and both of those guys probably get rotation consideration. You know, there's only really one opening with Quintana out, but then you've got to remember that the, uh, you know, the rotation uh, chicanery that Joe Madden has to do there to keep uh, Otani in the rotation on an odd schedule, pitching every seventh or eighth day or whatever it is. So, uh, you know, they, they're mixing and matching the the back end of this rotation, and it's possible that both of these guys will fall into turns from time to time as they move things around. Uh, Jock Thompson mentioned Jose Suarez in his Playing Time Tomorrow column. Of course, that's a regular rotating column that we have at BaseballHQ.com where our an, a division analyst looks at all five teams in the division and forecasts what might be going on on their roster. And uh, his report on Jose Suarez was kind of a, in a take a flyer on this kind of guy, uh, look at the various teams in the division. And it was a mixed message, I would say, Ray, that, uh, you know, he has the skills, he may be able to dominate, he's looked pretty good in some of his appearances, but it's far from a sure thing. Yeah, J J Jock has a, uh, you know, sort of his own terminology that has evolved from writing the, uh, you know, pithy and Space limited baseball forecaster boxes, and he used one of his uh, one of his favorite one of his favorite words here for Suarez, which was watchable, which uh, is sort of uh, you know shorthand for you know your own your own circumstances may vary, but there you know there may be something here. Uh, you know, and there's a couple of things to keep in mind. You know, Suarez is only 20 years old, and like everyone else, uh, you know, he's coming off of uh, you know that lost 2020 minor league season. So we're trying to reassess on the fly what he really is and where he is in his development. But Jock reminds us, too, that, you know, the Angels are always looking for pitching and it's not going to take much for Suarez to demonstrate uh, that, that he's ready or that he could contribute before they just pave the way for his opportunity. And but the downside of that is you know, that, that he has taken some lumps in the high minors, too. There are some strong walk to strikeout ratios here, more than a strikeout and inning in uh triple a and a sub four era in the pacific coast league is nothing to sneeze at but on the other hand he has shown you know in particular some uh some periodic problems with the long ball so uh you know there it, it's a classic risk reward situation here and meanwhile uh, jose quijada i have to say i hadn't really heard that much of him and uh, when i looked around in in the minor league baseball site and and some other sites there's just not a lot to go on yeah there's sort of a 
sort of sort of a mystery candidate here, but we'll keep an eye. Uh, you know, he got a mention from Jock too, so uh, you know that this might be a case where he might be the guy who picks up some of those swingman innings that uh, Suarez and uh, Suarez has been absorbing and Sandoval has been absorbing. You know, just in a, in a sort of a cascading on the depth chart uh, aspect here. So stay tuned. Right, and for the time being, uh, I think what we often say, and it sounds harsh, but we're talking about fantasy baseball, so the phrase that often comes up in these situations is not fantasy relevant, at least yeah. for now. And it depends on the depth of your league and what your rules are and stuff like that, I suppose. And um, But right now, I don't even see him as the kind of guy I'd be going, uh, rubbing my hands and saying, ooh, in a dynasty or keeper league, because I just don't see much there. No, I think that's right for... Uh... For, for the short term until he shows us something he's got two. you know he, he he merited the comment because he's got you know he's he's made two outings for the angels and he's been scoreless in both of them but one of them was three walks and three strikeouts in an inning and two-thirds so that i think that qualifies as an adventure so <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stay clear of that until we see a little more stability there well, I will uh, say that I just looked him up on uh, on the actual minor league site, and uh, 286 minors career ERA in uh, 290 innings. So it's not nothing. I mean, there it looks like there's something there, but that of course takes in every level of baseball from rookie league on up, and uh, not a lot of it at the top level. So again, like you said, uh, right now not fantasy relevant, but somebody to keep an eye on, just because he's in the big leagues. After all, there must be something that somebody has seen somewhere along the line. Uh, staying in pitching, but moving. Moving to Cleveland, boy, Tristan McKenzie's been up and down more often than a $5 yo-yo, and uh, he's down again. He's been sent to AAA because uh, he just wasn't performing, then he's up because of injuries, then he's down because he still isn't performing, and he's down again, and it looks like the beneficiary this time might be uh, Cal Quantrill. Yeah, I think we kicked this around last week when Zach Plesak got hurt, and like you said, McKenzie had just been sent down right before Plesak got hurt, right. and then he got called back to kind of make an emergency start to fill in for Plesak, but, you know, they clearly do want him to go down and work on some things or try to get stabilized. So they have sent him back down after that emergency start. And now it looks like it's Quantrill who is going to fill in. And, you know, Quantrill, we were sort of tepid on when we were sort of assessing the, you know, the candidates to fill in for Plesak initially, but there, there's some improvement going on there. You know, I'm looking at his April and May split, and you know, keep in mind that Quantrill is sort of, uh, you know, he's been born and raised as a starting pitcher, but the Indians have been using him out of the bullpen, and that wasn't going well. In April, he had 12 innings, seven walks, five strikeouts, a pretty decent 2.92 ERA, but that that walk strikeout ratio doesn't play at all. But then in May, as they, you know, he was still working in relief until the start this week, but they started to, you know, it seems like they maybe stretched him out a little bit more. But things clicked in. in in May in 18 innings. He's got four walks and 20 strikeouts. A he's walking two guys per nine, striking out ten. In terms of percentages, that's 27 percent strikeout rate, five percent walk rate for a 22 percent K minus BB. His his first start this week. You know, he only lasted three and two thirds through 60 pitches because he's still stretching out. But four hits, a run, no walks, and five strikeouts. Uh, you know, so you could project out from here that, you know, two starts from this, he should be ready to throw 85 to 90 pitches. And if he keeps that control in particular dialed in, I think he gets pretty interesting pretty quickly. I suppose he does. But for me, the bugboo, when I looked at his game record this year is at least through the first 15 or so appearances, there was a lot of one and two inning, uh, outings and man, he's given up a lot of hits. 
two, one, two, three, two, a couple of zeros, one, two, one, two, two, three, one. He very rarely seems to be able to get through even a very short uh, appearance without giving up at least one hit and often more. And that that doesn't play that well. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I didn't get a chance to pull up his pitch mix. I, I don't know what he was doing as a reliever in terms of shortening his arsenal. You know, he's not a... You know, he's not a massive velocity darling or anything. I mean, he threw, he's, it, it, we've got his fastball velocity at, you know, 94.8 miles an hour, which, yeah, I mean, is, you know, pretty average these in this day and age. So, he, you know, he's not a guy who could come come out with just his, you know, wh- like his teammates, Karinczak and Klaas, who could come out and just blow people away out of the bullpen. So, I, I, I haven't looked to see if he had shortened his, out, his, his arsenal to just fastball slider. But point being, his stuff is just not, it's not like his stuff is just unhittable, as your as your note here correctly points out. But you're back in the starting role. If he gets back to mixing three or four pitches and using his whole arsenal, then you know I wonder if we can't draw a, draw a direct line from the relief role to the starting work. Uh, you know, I, I don't actually know the answer to that. I'd have to go look it up. Meanwhile, if you just look over a couple of columns to the right on that very same chart at Baseball HQ's uh, player link page for uh, for Cal Quantrill, and there's a games tab that you can look at all of the all of the players' performances game by game for the season. Uh, man, as many hits as there are, there are more ground balls. This guy's getting a ton of ground balls. Uh, two, five, two, two. Every 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 game, there's a uh, a ground ball or more. Sometimes uh, three or four or even five in one instance, which is good. You know, even if the guy is not going to get a lot of strikeouts, a lot of ground balls pending how hard they're being hit, of course, and that kind of thing. A lot of ground balls means uh, usually a limit on the ERA. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, all of these individual counts that we're looking at on the, on the games tab, of course, roll up to a season-long number. And he's got an interesting ground ball, wide drive, fly ball split. He's got 49% ground balls, which is uh, slightly higher than we've seen in the last two years, uh, which sort of suggests that the hit total you're talking about is – that he's getting a little bit done in by the Indians' defense, but there's also a 26% line drive rate there, which is too high. So he's getting squared up a fair amount of the time, and you know that's a problem. We we'll want to see if, how that translates into the starting role. The good news there is this is only only a 25% fly ball rate, so you don't expect the home runs to be a real problem. So you know this is very much uh, you know a, a work in progress. Uh, you know it's a speculative kind of play, but you know I'm interested the. In- one thing we haven't mentioned is the Indians, you know, are a good, good organization as far as developing young starters, and they've presumably, even in the bullpen role, been working on Quantrill's arsenal. Um, you know, having since they acquired him from San Diego a couple of years back, and you know, this might be time to sort of take the training wheels off and see what uh, see what he can do in an expanded role with, uh, you know, how they've been trying to re- sort of reboot and reinvent reinvent him since they acquired him. Well said. Uh, the the uh, Cleveland pitching coaching structure seems to be doing a really good job at getting good young pitchers to be really terrific young pitchers. And let's see if that happens with Cal Quantrill. It might be worth putting a, a little bit of a fab bit on this weekend. I'm sure there'll be action. Uh, Seattle Mariners placed outfielder Kyle Lewis on the 10-day IL this week. He has some right knee discomfort, is all they're calling it. The team recalled uh, outfield prospect uh, prospect-ish outfielder Taylor Trammell from AAA. Uh, what's the situation with Kyle Lewis, and how does the outfield play out in Seattle? 
Yeah, if you remember, you know, uh, Lewis was late to start the season because of injury, and now he's back on the IL. So we go back to Shrebel, who started the season in the outfield and really did not acquit himself well, although he picked it up in uh, somewhat, somewhat in AAA as he was uh, you know, down for the last couple of weeks since Lewis got activated. I think Lewis got activated right around the end of April. So you know, it's been almost a month that uh, Trammell was in the minors. And down at AAA to Tacoma, he really had straightened himself out. He was uh, he had hitting 384 with uh, you know, an OPS over 1,100 in 80, in 80 plate appearances, you know, like I said, roughly four weeks of work. Uh, but you know, even, you know, even that is tempered with a little bit of uh, caution and that his uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio was still pretty bad, striking out 17 times in 80 plate appearances against only three walks. So he was... Uh, he was free swinging, but getting good results in AAA. That's a, you know, that, that that's a cocktail that is probably not going to translate well on the way back. But on the chance that he has really figured something out, there's, uh, you know, maybe there's a little cause for optimism here. You know, it's it's unfortunate he hit a buck fifty in uh, the month of April while he was up with the Mariners, and then went back to the minors and hit, you know, three eighty. So yeah. <laughs> it's fair to say the truth is somewhere in the middle, but it's probably somewhat below the average of those two, right? Yeah, that's usually the way it works out. As many a person has said on this show and, and elsewhere, There's a the biggest jump in all of organized baseball is from AAA to the majors. Everything else is, you know, there, there are jumps in difficulty from single A to double A to AAA, but the next jump is the biggest jump, and that's where a lot of players literally fall by the wayside because it's just too hard. And uh, the as you said, the average is not usually what we can expect. It's going to be the average minus a few points or a few dollars or however you want to calibrate it. But he's going to be playing, so there there is that, and maybe he'll figure it out. It's going to be interesting to see. And again, if you're, this is one of those situations, isn't it, Ray, where if you're sitting in third place or second place in your league, this is not the time to be gambling on a guy like Taylor Trammell, frankly. But if you're ninth, and you need to, you know, shake things up. Maybe it is a time to go after somebody like this and and cross your fingers. That I think that's right. In, in particular, a case like this, when there are so many swing and miss concerns, and there's real batting average downside. Assuming that that's a consideration in your league, I I, I think you're right that it's a it's a swing for the fences kind of move. If you're hoping to catch lightning in a bottle or need to have something go very very right for you, you can bet on the skill for Tremel and hope that he is sort of graduating off of the prospect hamster wheel here and that what he did in the minors over the last few weeks is, you know, is, re- is representative of a change. But yeah, if things are going pretty well for you or if, you, or if you're in the middle of the pack in a tight batting average category, this is a this is a scary place to speculate because it could easily cost you points. In an on-base league, it might be a little better. He draws a lot of walks, 11% this year, but still a very low on-base percentage only because the batting average is so low that you could be walking twice what he is and still not pull it up into where you need it to be. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm just eyeballing his game log just like you were doing in the last conversation, and boy, you can really see in his game log that you know he got off to a you know okay start in the first half of April, but then as he started to struggle with the plate, he really started pressing. I'm counting, but it might be, you know, 10 or 12 walks he had in April. And I think 10 of them came in the 10 of the 12 came in the first half of the month. And then the last half of April, you know, it was just a strikeout fest against all of two walks. So clearly he had, he had lost the, the thread and we'll have to wait and see whether, uh, 
he comes whether his uh his mind is cleared and he comes back with a uh back to his more patient approach because he does own that skill but he had just it had just gone on the shelf before he got sent down Seattle also activated left-handed starter Marco Gonzalez from the IL. He had a forearm issue, that's all that they really said, and they optioned right-hander Robert Duggar back to Tacoma to make room for Gonzalez. What do we think of Marco Gonzalez, who was getting a little bit of interest before he went on the IL? Yeah, it was it was interesting. He had a you know, a profile that was getting a little bit of interest this preseason and that you know, we were starting to think or some analysts were starting to think that he had sort of a, sort of taken ownership of the skill of avoiding hard contact. And, you know, the strikeout rate isn't really anything impressive or, you know, acceptable in this day and age. You know, he was striking out seven, eight guys per nine, which is below average these days. But, you know, we, in 2020, when he was successful with a 310 ERA, he paired that, you know, eight strikeouts per nine with you know, less than one walk per nine. And if you and if you're not walking anybody and you're limiting hard contact, you know, there's a recipe for a good ERA there, even if you aren't blowing a fastball by people and striking people out. Now, maybe he was struggling with the shoulder before he went on the DL all this preseason, but he had lost the pinpoint control. He was up to walking 3.3 guys per nine, which is just not, um, you know, is not that pinpoint control. And, you know, he was kind of living on a razor's edge there with that, you know, command plus command profile and walking you know, 9% of his batters against 21% strikeouts just doesn't do it. So does that, you know, I'll be curious to watch a couple of starts and see if he's back to that pinpoint control. And if whatever was bugging him in the shoulder, he was trying to, trying to fight through in April, but uh, I'll need a couple of starts before I jump back on this bandwagon. The, comments I've heard from people who've been following injuries for a long time is when you're looking at pitchers, uh, usually it's elbow means control loss and shoulder means velocity loss. Not always, and it's not a hard and fast rule, but that's kind of a rule of thumb to go by. And this issue is neither elbow nor shoulder. It's actually, they call it forearm, but oftentimes, Ray, when they say there's a forearm problem, it's it's actually an elbow problem that's working its way into that forearm area. Uh, Could it be that that this is going to work out to be an elbow problem and that if it is, we can't really expect that uh, Gonzalez is going to recover the pinpoint control you mentioned? I'm certainly weary of it. Again, I, you know, it's hard to say whether this, you know, these injury situations and the, in, and the information we get around them are always, you know, there's always a little bit of guesswork involved. This could be a case where, you know, they think they nip, they nip the problem in a bud. And so a lot of times with the elbow in particular, it's a question of getting the guy shut down in time before he, before, that forearm pain that you're talking about cascades to the elbow pain and and leads to the UCL blowing out or whatever the outcome, the outcome is, or this could be a case where they think they got it tamped down, but they're going to throw them out there for a couple of starts and see how it feels. You know, I I don't know. I mean, you know, in his first start back this week, you know, you know, he only threw four innings through 50 pitches. So, I mean, that's clearly basically a rehab start in the major leagues, but, you know, against the A's, that's one walk and six strikeouts, which is better than what we were seeing before he went on the DL. So, you know, I'll give him one start of credit toward a, a a three or four start evaluation before I would even consider jumping on him. But, you know, he probably wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't one of those people that was on him in the preseason. So I'm probably not one of those people who's rushing back to him now, but others' mileage may vary. And I was looking at the forecaster blurb that, uh, 
that Marco Gonzalez got from Baseball HQ and the Baseball Forecaster, and it said, of all the small 2020 samples in this book, this is one of the most suspicious. So you're left looking back to 2019, and the downside is a 5 ERA, and as of now, his ERA is 501. So maybe the Baseball Forecaster, once again, with an excellent forecast. Shut him down right now. We'll chalk that up as a win. <laughs> in Oakland, they put outfielder Ramon Laureano on the 10-day IL. He's got a hip strain, and they recalled uh, outfielder Sky Bolt. Sounds like a superhero of some kind. I imagine he's tired of hearing that. But uh, what's going to happen in the Oakland outfielder with Ramon Laureano, who just seems to have the injury bug? Yeah, Laureano, it was interesting. I'm, You know, he, he's on the DL with a hip, and... He was running like mad in the first like two weeks of the season. I think he stole eight bases in the first two weeks. And mm-hmm. in the last like six weeks, I think he stole one more, which kind of makes me wonder how long he's been battling this hip problem. Until they shut him down, there was no indication there was anything wrong with him. He was still in the lineup every day, but the stolen bases had just gone poof. So I don't know if there's correlation or causation there, but it was the, sort of the first thing I thought of when the DL move came. Um, while he's out, though, yeah, Bolt comes up to backfill the roster, but it's probably going to be the guys who are already on the roster who are getting most of these at bats. Um, Chad, um, Mark Hanna moves from the corner outfield to center most of the time, I think, and that frees up Chad Pinder, maybe Bolt, maybe some more Stephen Piscotty, maybe maybe some more Seth Brown. So there's uh, yeah, there's a bunch of guys who can fill in the corner outfield roles here as kind of holds down center while Oriano's out. But it doesn't sound like you're real enthusiastic about the increased playing time prospects of anybody who's currently not a top playing time guy in, in Oakland. It's a jigsaw puzzle. And I don't think there's one playing time beneficiary here. Um, Piscotti had really fallen out of favor in the last couple of weeks. Maybe this gets him a reprieve, but there hadn't been a lot going on with his bad he had lost a lot of playing time to uh to seth brown in particular because brown was hitting and brown is a lefty and has the good side platoon and brown had sort of gotten his bat going while mitch Moreland was on the dl but then Moreland came back so that got the two lefties into the lineup with brown in the outfield and Moreland the dh piscotti on the bench so you know maybe piscotti picks up some of these at bats here pinder you know is a utility guy who could play a little bit of second base and a little bit of corner outfield, but I, you know, I don't love any of these bats and I don't love the playing time opportunity for any of them enough to, to say, this is the, the one of the four guys who was a free agent in your league who might have an opportunity over the next couple of weeks. I don't think it's that clear cut. And Jock Thompson notes, if you're looking at Pinder, uh, take into account that he has a pretty pronounced platoon split as well, 800 OPS versus left-handers, but only about 680 or so versus right-handers. So if you're going to have him, if you're in the kind of a league where you can bounce a guy in and out, depending on what's going on with the pitching on the opposition side, then keep that in mind. Uh, Finally, uh, Kansas City Royals recalled outfielder Edward Olivares from AAA Omaha on Sunday and sent down right-hander Carlos Hernandez. Uh, Jock Thompson on the story for playing time today. Uh, three games so far for Edward Olivares. He's four for 11, which is a tidy 364 batting average. And it's only three games, Ray, but I found this weird. No counting stats, no runs, no RBIs, no stolen bases, no caught stealings, nothing like that. It's just like he's got four hits and that's the end of it. Not even any doubles, no extra base hits, four singles and that 11 is, tries. That is weird. It is weird. 
it, this is a bit of an interesting case, though. There was um, there was some Twitter chatter about people being excited about Oliveras getting called up on Sunday, and I will confess that I didn't have any reason in the back of my mind to understand why that would be interesting. So I went further to go look around, and you know, he got ninety something point appearances last year with. Uh, the Royals after getting, uh, I believe, acquired from the Padres and didn't do much. He had 240 with three home runs and 10 RBIs and 96 at-bats. It was entirely unremarkable. Uh, so that was what was in my memory. But what I was not aware of was that he'd been absolutely raking in AAA, you know, kind of unlike not what we were saying about uh, Kyle Lewis a couple of minutes ago. Since the In the month of May, since the minor league season had started, Olivares was raking was raking in the minors and you know he was hitting you know darn close to 400 with the five home runs and notably 11 walks to 13 strikeouts and seven stolen bases in a month five home runs seven stolen bases it was a very very good month of may in triple a for Oliveris. of course as we just covered those stats don't necessarily immediately carry over but the opportunity here is a little more interesting because the royals are quite honestly starved for outfield productivity he Oliveras's call-up is really tied to Ryan O'Hearn getting sent down but more than that it's also tied to Jorge Soler having a groin pull that's got him that's shelved him for this entire week so far and may yet put him on the DL but Soler is also hitting like a buck 40 so if Oliveras comes up and hits at all then it's not at all impossible to imagine an extended playing time opportunity here and I'm not suggesting he's going to hit four home 400 with five home runs and stolen bases, seven stolen bases every month in the majors because that's not going to translate. But if he puts the ball in place, gives you a smattering of power and speed, and has a regular playing time opportunity because the Royals really need a little productivity out of that outfield, I do get pretty interested here. Well, Jorge Soler is just terrible this year. Uh, 178 oh. batting average, uh, 257 on base. I have him on my roster in tout, and I paid a pretty price for him. And boy, it's just been a, a hot running disaster. But you talked about, and we talked about, the extent to which minor league stats translate into major league stats and how those percentages work out. And I remember reading at Baseball HQ somewhere, and I'm, I may even have written it, but uh, the likelihood is one of our scouts or somebody wrote about this. Speed is the one thing that does kind of translate from the minors to the majors more like on a more one-to-one basis than home runs or even batting average does because speed is like the kind of skill that is easily exploited and it doesn't require you to hit a ball which is moving through you know three different planes at once and all of that kind of stuff all you have to do is be good at running and, and have a half an idea about the count to run on and stuff like that. Yeah, the bases are still 90 feet apart in AAA, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, you know, not only that, but, you know, if you look at this profile from Oliveris, he doesn't have to hit 400 to get plenty of chances to get on base if he's going to sustain anything near that, you know, 11 walk to 13 strikeout ratio that he was carrying in AAA. You know, that suggests that there's some going to be some real on-base skills here, even if his on-base, even if his batting average pulls back 100 points. You know, there's room for that. Uh, he didn't walk much when he was up in the majors last year, so we need to see that that skill carries over. But it, you know, there's the potential for that, and it's a team context where they do run more. You know, they have Mondesi, who's back off the DL, and Merrifield, of course, at the top of the order, has been running 
that Intendi has been running a little bit. So, you know, this is not a team that flashes the red-white around all of the time. So, yeah, there's a there's a decent chance that Olivares's stolen base skill could be a decent part of his value proposition here. Yeah, in his 2020, I think, 4% walk rate, which is uh, his career walk rate because he hasn't been up this year enough to, to – change anything one last note about this whole situation uh, ryan o'hearn got demoted is this the end of ryan o'hearn it it you know it, i'm not, never say never because he could be another another injury that brings him back or whatever whatever the circumstances are you know he's probably still just a heartbeat away but i mean we're talking about you know a career 210 hitter in 643 at bats so you'll know, punt a plenty representative of a full season. He's age 27 now. I don't know how many more chances that profile gets for a, uh, you know, for a first baseman only. You know, he's masqueraded in the outfield once or twice, but basically a first baseman who doesn't hit. I'm reminded of you know, Ronald Guzman too. You know, eventually these guys get enough opportunities to say that we can do better than this. Yeah, and it's a 27-year-old guy on a team that's got future aspirations rather than, you know, dangling around thinking about the present. A 27-year-old guy hitting, you know, 220 or whatever he's hitting and no power is not going to be high on their radar either. They've got to make some other kinds of decisions. Uh, If I had Ryan O'Hearn on a roster somewhere, I'd be sorely tempted, I think, to not even hold him on reserve unless my reserve was unlimited. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. Always interesting and fun, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a regular columnist at the site, and, of course, our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Prospects 361, coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Prospects361.com. Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Got the old coffee refresh. She's all warmed up and we're ready to roll. Tim you're widely regarded in the fantasy baseball community, and this is how I first got to know you as well uh, down at first pitch as one of our leading experts on Japanese and Korean baseball. First of all, how did you get interested in Japanese baseball and then later in the Korean leagues? Well, one of the early leagues that I, I got involved with, I picked up an expansion team, okay, and my best player was Carlos Zambrano, and his best skill was beating up Gatorade uh, containers. <laughs> So I was I was in a situation where I had to look elsewhere. We could sign anybody anywhere. So I thought to myself, where am I going to find talent? Okay, and I started looking to Asia. Okay, and it was a it was a keeper salary capped uh, auction league. Uh, and the more that I started looking at the Asian players, the more interested I got. And from there, back in about 2006, I was playing in a league with Peter Kreitzer, uh, affiliated with then his message board, and it was a 20-team league. And he put out a blurb asking if anybody had, you know, could contribute or knew anything about Japanese players. Well, I got a hold of Peter, and basically, I wrote him a blurb about this Dice K. Matsuzaka guy. And a year before he came over, I said he's going to break the bank. And Peter published it in his annual baseball guide. And 
that was the beginning and it just sort of grew from there. I, I kept following it more and more. And the early years were fascinating because there were no English language sites at that point in time. So I was working, translating absolutely everything, trying to find information, Patrick. And it, it, it was a lot of work, but it was also a lot of fun. And from there, basically, uh, my regular gig with the baseball guide and uh, hanging out at various message boards and podcasting, etc. Again, I just became a bit of a source when it came to the Asian players. And I, I love it. I still... I don't spend as much time today because there are so many people out there doing it and the information is so readily accessible, but I still, I still scout, I still follow. I, it's, it's just changed because of the information that's now currently available as compared to 10, 15 years ago when nobody knew anything. You know, it, it was, it was new, new territory, a lot of fun. Well, more players, as we know, are coming over from leagues in Japan and Korea, Tim, and if most fantasy managers are like me, well, we don't understand those leagues very well. We don't understand the processes by which players get from Asia to Major League Baseball. So let's start in Japan, maybe give us a high-level view. Just how is baseball set up in Japan? Well, in Japan, there are, there are two divisions of six teams. Uh, they play a short home and home two game interleague schedule. Uh, one league has the DH one league doesn't. <laughs> that sort of sounds familiar, doesn't it? it does. Uh, and when it comes to service time, uh, you're looking at nine years to free agency, international free agency, and you're looking at eight years to what they call domestic free agency, moving meaning you can move within the league. But to head to North America, there are only two. There are only three ways actually. One is international free agency after seven, nine years of service time, uh, a posting, and signing with a North American team before you sign with a Japanese team. Those are the three ways you can end up in North America, and. One of the uh, one of the ways we've seen a lot of players, I should say a lot, 21 players have been posted since the advent of the posting situation. And that was put in place to stop players from retiring and moving to North America, as we as we saw in the late 90s with uh, Noel. So I remember you said somewhere that the posting system is really widely misunderstood that people think of it as a cash grab that somehow the, the major league team has to pay this ransom just for the right to talk to the player. And if the player says, no, thank you, then the team is out the money. That's not how it works, right? Well, the key to understanding the posting system is to understand the fact that all of the power uh, in the system itself comes from the team that the player plays for. Okay, so people seem to think that, you know, hey, this player can get a posting or he can ask for a posting. There are, there are teams in Japan that have never posted a player. They don't believe in it and they won't. And they will force players to go through that nine full years to head to North America. So when a player, uh, a player has to be very cautious in Japan and very tactful in, in how they approach this, because basically they're going to their team and asking the team to release them to have the opportunity to play in Major League Baseball. And the team can say yes or no, and there is no recourse for the player. 
none whatsoever. So, you know, hey, a uh, prime example, uh, there, there's a pitcher right now, Cordy Senga. He's wanted to come over for a few years. Uh, his team basically said, no, we're not going to post you. And this player has no recourse. None whatsoever. So, again, that to me is the biggest misunderstanding with the posting system. It's like, you know, hey, player doesn't go to the team and say, I want to be posted, and they get posted. No, there's a lot more to it. Everything, everything is controlled by the teams in Japan, and they will determine whether or not they want to grant a posting. And Tanaka is a prime example. Uh, there was a handshake agreement with his owner. And basically, again, this is, sorry, a rumored handshake ag agreement. And then the deal was if he won, uh, pitched well, and the team won the Japan Series, they'd post him. Well, hey, he did, yeah, he, he went 24-0 and 0 that year. The team won the Japan Series. Tanaka got posted. So, again, uh, there's a lot more that goes into the actual posting than just Hey, I want to be posted. I want to go play in MLB. It, it, it's not quite that simple, Patrick. But the major league team that has to put up, I remember when uh, some players have come over, there's been a lot of hullabaloo. I think when Darvish came, there was all of yeah. this talk about all these teams have to put up this money ahead of time just for the opportunity to negotiate with, mm. uh, with the guy coming over. And that the, uh, as I said, the, the belief was that the team was out the money, the team put up the mm. money and, and they lost it. But I believe if, uh, uh, from reading your work that in fact, the money is payable from the ma major league team to the Japanese team only after the guy actually signs. Well, yeah, there is, there's no money changing hands, uh, until a player signs a major league contract. And at the point in time that, uh, Darvish came over, uh, the agreement was basically an open agreement as far as bidding was concerned. What happened was there was a four-day four window where teams submitted a, a bid, and the highest bid won the right to negotiate. That bid amount only came into play if an agreement was signed. And there was no cap on it at that point in time, which is why you saw numbers like, you know, I think it was $51 million for Darvish or whatever. The, the whole procedure has been changed and now what happens is the teams in japan get 20 percent of the first 25 million 17 and a half on the next 25 50 percent 15 percent on anything over 50 million and a flat 25 if it's a minor league contract so the days of seeing huge dollars uh, being bid uh, are long gone the system has been changed. And uh, the other thing that that has changed is when a player is posted now, they can go to any team they want and negotiate. Under the old system, they were locked into whoever had the highest bid and they could only negotiate with that one team for 30 days. Now, basically, when a player is posted, they can go to any team in the league and negotiate. And if they do reach an agreement, then the payment schedule uh, kicks into play after they sign. But for all intents and purposes, from the major league team's point of view, this guy's a free agent. He can negotiate with one team, 10 teams, or all the teams. And yep. Okay. And the nine-year free agency, does that also involve a payment to the Japanese club, or is, a, is it a true free agency? It's a true free agency, Patrick. Once, once a player has nine years of service time, uh... They can go wherever they want, and there's no payment. They are a true 
free agent. And uh, I'm just trying to think the, you know, Urihara, when he came over, he was, he was a true free agent. Uh, one, one of the problems when you look at it from uh, a major league baseball perspective is uh, most of the free agents that you see coming to major league baseball because of the nine year service time, you're looking at all veteran players. You're not looking at the, the younger player with upside. Like let's take a look at Otani. There's a prime example. You're getting a young player that has incredible growth potential. How much potential do you have out of a 32 year old starter who's pitched for, you know, since he was 23 in the uh, Nippon professional baseball. So again, what you want to do is you want to see players coming over as early as possible. And the Japanese teams want to keep those players. You know, they got, they got, they've got a game to play. Their interest in major league, their interest in major league baseball is not to operate as a farm system for them. Well, you mentioned Otani and he did get over here at a relatively young age. How did that work? Why was he not obliged to stay the, the nine years or to, or did he go through posting? How did that work? Um, yeah, he went through a posting situation and his team agreed to it. Uh, why they agreed to it? Hey, hey, who knows? (laughs) Okay. It was a very, very odd, odd situation. Uh, he was, when he came, uh, into the game, there was talk that he might look at coming straight into major league baseball, which is any Japanese Korean that that is their option. Okay, before they sign that first contract with Japan and Korea, they're free agents. Okay, me and you know we saw Stewart sign in Japan. I think it was last year or two years ago. Uh, you know, MLB drafted player. He just chose to. He wanted to play in Japan. He saw the opportunities being better, so he went to Japan. But you don't see very many Japanese players signing with major league teams without playing in Japan. There, there have been a few. Tazawa is one. I think Max Suzuki was another. Yeah, there have been a few. But most players, and Otani was one, they want to get some development time in Japan and move forward through either the posting or free agency later on in their career. And you can't blame them. You know, you're looking at 18, 19-year-old kids. Uh, a lot of them don't speak English. You know, they're going from one culture to another culture. They're leaving their parents, their family, everything behind. Uh, there's not too many young people, I think, that are prepared to make that transition and that commitment outside of the game itself. There's a myriad of things that, and, and change that makes it very, very tough. I know, Hey, for me to pack up and go move to Japan tomorrow, not speaking the language, you know, it wouldn't matter what skill I had. There's gotta be some trepidation involved there. Plus the world. Plus I think you've lost a few miles an hour off the fastball. Uh, a couple, yeah. So this raises an interesting question. You talk about a young Japanese player who hits a certain point where he has to decide what his baseball future is going to be. What is the development system? Where are these guys learning their skills and, and becoming interesting to major league teams and to Japan league teams? Is it high school? Is it college? Is there some kind of developmental league? Uh, where do those young players develop the skills that get them into a position to make that choice? Well, there's uh, the biggest uh, source of players is the high school system. And high school baseball in Japan, Koshin, it, it is arguably bigger and more popular than pro baseball. 
Okay, they have their the spring and fall the, uh, tournaments, and they're the stuff legends are made of. Uh, uh, again, the high school system uh, feeds their baseball. The college system feeds it. They have an independent league, and as well, the uh, each of the Japanese uh, teams in the big league, they all have a farm team, and they play... Uh, they have an East and a West division, and they have much the same as Major League Baseball with AAA and AA. They only have one level of team, but they do have a farm system that they can draw players from. And a, lo a lot of the younger players do play in the farm system before getting actually promoted to the big league teams in Japan, Patrick. So if a player gets out of high school, gets signed into the Japan League, and gets uh, assigned to this double A AA or triple A level type of league, is he still able to just leave and come to the U.S. to play, or is he at that point locked into the nine-year and posting system? Nine years and posting. Once he once he puts his John Henry on a contract, uh, uh, Major League Baseball, it, he's out of their out of their reach totally. He's in their system, and he moves forward uh, with the restrictions placed upon them because of that system. Tim, we've all heard Japanese baseball described as it's kind of a quad A level, a little better than AAA, not as good as Major League Baseball in overall quality, not uh, individual players. Uh, that raises the question of how, as we uh, fantasy players look at Japanese baseball, how do we calibrate the stats in that league and compare them or adjust them or or adapt them to major league equivalents. We do that for minor leaguers. We have formulas to translate, you know, AAA numbers in certain leagues. You multiply it or divide by or whatever to get a rough idea of what they're going to do in the major leagues. But what's the what's the level of Japanese baseball and how do you look at the stats the Japanese players create in those leagues and think to yourself, this is a guy who could hit, you know, this in major league baseball. You ever heard of the Magic 8-Ball, Patrick? <laughs> I have. <laughs> yes. Okay. It, it's very, very difficult when you start looking at players coming from Japan to Major League Baseball and trying to come up with a, uh, a Major League equivalent. Okay. I think when you look at uh, the parks are smaller. Now, you like they're not miniature, but again, you're looking at 330, 340 down the lines. You're looking at 400 to dead center. Okay, so they're marginally smaller. Uh, you, There are power hitters in Japan, very, very good power hitters. Uh, there's a young kid right now, Murakami. Murakami's 21 now. He's got 80 home runs in his first three seasons. Uh, he won the rookie of the year as a 19-year-old. Now, he's, he's, he's a ways away. But again, there are power hitters, but uh, I generally tend to look at pitching. Uh, hey, you throw the ball 100 miles an hour. You got good off-speed stuff. I, I think you can post or potentially post very close to those same numbers in Major League Baseball. Like, you know, that, that Cody Sengai was mentioning that's requested to come over and his team hasn't grabbed him. Mean, he's got a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, and he's got a forkball. It just... It falls off the it falls off the table. Okay, you look at a kid like that, and he's gonna he's gonna be successful. 
barring injury, whatever, he's got the potential to be a very successful pitcher. So when I'm looking at translating his stats, I take that into play. Hitters, I have a tendency to look at about uh, 70%, 60 70% as a ballpark. And again, it depends on the player. If speed is the predominant feature that they're bringing to the table, well, it doesn't matter what league you're playing in, getting from first to second, you know, hey, if, if your times are good and you're a good runner, you're going to do it. Problem is getting to first base to have the opportunity. So, again, I, I tend to downgrade hitters a little bit. Uh, and, again, it's it's a different style of game. You see a lot more advancing base runners in Japan. Okay. Uh, like right now, the, the top hitter that we could possibly see in the next year or two is a gentleman by the name of Seiya Suzuki. Okay. Uh, not big power. He's hit, I think, as many as 29 home runs. He's stolen as many as 25 bases. You're looking at a player that could hit 15 to 20 home runs, uh, maybe 10 stolen bases. But what he brings to the game is his career OBP over seven full seasons is 411. Okay, so again, if you bring this, you bring this kid over, and you're looking at a number two hitter, the odds of success are very, very good. If you're betting on him being a three, four, five hitter, they're not quite so good. Uh, again, and how he is utilized when he comes to Major League Baseball, and the level of patience that the team shows in him, will combined with his ability to adapt to a new culture, there's a, there's a lot of factors in there. I'll leave it at that, Patrick. A, a lot of factors. But I, again, hey, Suzuki in the right situation, I think, has got a good chance of being a successful, above-average Major League Baseball player. But again, a lot of variables in there. A lot of variables. Do you, for want of a better term, trust pitcher stats more than you do hitter stats to be capable of making the translation to major league quality? Yeah, I, uh, the one the one stat, and I, I look at it in Major League Baseball, much much the same with Major League Baseball players. I, I, I like walks, okay? I like pitchers that don't allow them, and I like hitters that know how to take them. And I think when you start looking at uh, the Japanese player, I put that same philosophy in place. Okay, you, you got a pitcher who throws strikes, he's got... 95 mile an hour high heat, you know, hey, the chances of success are very high. When you look at batters that know and understand the strike zone, it's the same situation. Uh, again, uh, you've got to temper your expectations somewhat, though. Like this Suzuki, you look at his numbers and you figure, hey, man, this guy's going to come over and he's going to hit 25 home runs. He's going to steal 20 bases. Well, no, he's not. But I think he can hit 15 home runs, steal 10 bases, and post a 375 OBP. If if you tailor your, tailor your expectations and make them reasonable, I think the odds of success are much better. To what extent, Tim, have the Japanese leagues adopted advanced stats like stat cast, exit velocities, uh, movement of pitching, that kind of thing? They've been very early on it, uh, Patrick. As a matter of fact, going back, I don't know if you remember the Cubs pitcher, uh, Fujikawa? Yeah. He came over a few years ago. Uh, as early as, I believe, 2006, they were utilizing spin rate. Is that right? Uh, yeah. No, I first learned of spin rate uh, not from the uh, North American pundits and uh, sabermaticians. I, I learned about spin rate because they were utilizing it in Japan and 
as early as uh, the early 2000s. Uh, they're very advanced. There's a, there's a site out there uh, uh, called Delta Graphs, or The Essence of Baseball 102. It's entirely in Japanese, but they do all advanced stats for all the Japanese players. So they are they're as advanced as Major League Baseball when it comes to the the stats that they're looking at and generate and can generate, Patrick. So it, it's all out there. They're not uh, they're not taking a backseat to Major League Baseball when it comes to advanced stats, not at all. Well, as I've looked at it over the years, you know, I watch these Japanese players coming into fantasy consideration. And I've always had it in my mind that the transition is probably easier for pitchers than it is for hitters. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why that is. It just seems to me that pitching is you have so much more control over the outcomes that you generate than a hitter yep. does because you don't have to, you know, the, the hitting's harder than pitching, basically. And we have hitters like Ichiro who come to mind, but... There's a lot of pitchers that when you say to somebody, other than Ichiro Suzuki, what Japanese players do you remember? And most of the time, most baseball fans and fantasy owners are going to say Hideo Nomo, Irabu, Suzuki you mentioned, uh, Kaz Sasaki, I had him one time on a <laughs> fantasy roster, uh, Shig Hasegawa, lots of guys remember uh, Daisuke you mentioned, Kenta Maeda yeah. currently, um, yeah. Tanaka. But among hitters, other than Ichiro, maybe Hideki Matsui, not so many. Is Am I right in inferring that it's been easier for the pitchers than the hitters? Yeah, I, I agree. Totally. Uh, uh, and, and again, a lot of the hitters we're seeing are, are older bats. Okay, one of the reasons that I was fairly excited with, and I know this isn't in Japanese, but uh, the Korean player, Hasan Kim, one of the reasons I was very excited about seeing him come over was because he was 25 years old. And there was potential at that age, 25, much more potential to grow into being a successful major league player at 25 as compared to at 29. Okay. And I, I agree with you. It, it's tougher as a hitter. But then again, you take a look at uh, Otani. And again, uh, he's such an amazing player. Whether pitching or hitting, I, I honestly think Otani is a better hitter than he is a pitcher. And he's up at the top of the leaderboards uh, as far as most of the hitting categories early on this year, including home runs, stolen bases. So, uh, again, I, I think with the younger player, I think the opportunities are greater, but we're not going to see that many younger players come over, Patrick. So definitely pitching has the edge, in my opinion. You mentioned the Korean baseball. Let's switch to that. Do they have stat cast or that kind of thing? Um, I'm not sure about the advanced uh, metrics but uh, that are available to the general public. But uh, again, I would put the KBO as one notch below the NPB, okay, as far as grave. If, if you want to say that uh, the NPB is a, a quad A type league, I would go double A on the KBO. Oh. Okay. Uh, but again, we've seen some great players come out of Korea. Uh, you know, Hunjin Ru, Chan Ho Park. Sinsu Chu. Uh, again, their star players, much like Japan, their star players are going to be star players, whether it be in Japan, Korea, or in North America. And again, I hey, people are a little disappointed with Kim. I'm not. I I, I still hold out hope that uh, Hassan Kim is going to be a fine major league player down the road. 
Yeah, you remembered uh, some of the guys that uh, have really stuck in my mind over the years. I have had Shinsu Chu on a bunch of teams over the years, yep. and he, boy, he's a he can deliver, especially in on base leagues for many yeah. years. I also remember remember he saw Choi. He's the guy that ran yeah. into Kerry Wood on the pop up and and concussed mm-hmm. both of them. I think. Uh, anyhow, yeah. Uh, I think we covered this, but just uh, refresh our our memories. The, how do Korean ball players make the transition into the major leagues? Is there posting or is it free agency? How does that work? Uh, basically, it's the same as the Japanese player. At one point in time, there were two separate posting clauses. There's now one clause that covers the NPB and the KBO, uh, and it's a, and it's a identical. The only difference in the Korean baseball organization is that you can't apply for a posting until after you have seven years of service time in Korea. Okay. At which point in time you can ask you can ask your team for a posting, and it's the same situation as Japan. You know, the team has the right to say yay or nay, and they do. Uh, in most cases, uh, they say yay. You know, yeah. Jim was post- posted at twenty five. He started as an eighteen year old, so he started right out of right out of high school. So again, the the only big difference is you've got to have seven years of service time before you can even inquire about posting. Is it relatively common for a player to make the jump from high school right into the pros at the highest level in their system? The same way it is here. I mean, you think there's Robin Yount, and after that, it, yeah. the numbers get pretty thin. Yeah, you, you see, uh, you see a lot more than you do in North America, but it's still, you know, hey, one of the better pitchers in Japan right now, or one that I like is Hiraya Miyagi, and he's a southpaw. He turns 20 in August. Okay, he's 5-1 and one this year with a 243 ERA strikeout for any right out of high school. You see players coming right out of high school that can excel. Okay, but again, it, it's not it's not like a common fact or a common occurrence, much the same in Major League Baseball, but you will see more high school level players entering professional baseball in both Japan and Korea than you do in the North American game, Patrick. You mentioned something earlier that I forgot to bring up and I'd like to ask you about it now. When we talk Mm -hmm. about pitchers, there have been lots of stories in the media and the sports media here in North America about the very heavy uh, pitching usage in high school and, and on into the professional leagues. Like there are stories about guys pitching in those tournaments, high school tournaments, you mentioned yeah. uh, 160 pitches on Friday night and 180 pitches on, on Sunday afternoon kind of situations. How big of a concern is that for you when you're assessing these pitchers, the idea that their workloads might've been like monstrous by comparison to ours? Uh, I think it's something that you have to consider, but at the same point in time, you know, I, I think uh, Miyagi in his last start threw 111 pitches, okay, as a 20-year-old. Now, would that happen in North America? No, but does that make it wrong per se? Mm, I can't I can't tell you if that's right or wrong. If 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 he's if he's not hurting and he's pitching well, again. It's a different world. The other thing that happens in Japan is they, and, and again, it's something that uh, a lot of people aren't aware of, is they go with six-man rotations. They have a day off a week. So they only pitch once a week. 
Okay, the workload might be a little bit higher. Uh, now, at the high school level, yeah, that's a whole different kettle of fish, what happens at the high school level and their usage when you get into some of their tournaments. But the pro players, uh, you know, uh, other than Tanaka, who has worked incredibly hard that last year before he came over, I, I don't think, I think more is made of, of it at the pro level than it actually is. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Hey, you're not pitching twice a week. You're pitching once a week. Yeah. Hey, you throw on off days, uh, bullpens, just like in major league baseball. So yeah. Hey, is there anything technically wrong with a throwing, throwing 120 pitches at the pro level? Some would say that's too much for a 20 year old. Some would say, yeah, it's fine. I, I think it depends on the individual pitcher myself. And, of course, we know from uh, injury research that a lot of it depends on 120 what kind of pitches. Were they all high-stress, guys on base, got to go from the stretch rather than the wind-up? I don't, I don't think there's such a thing as 120 pitches in a game that we can categorize absolutely as good, bad, or indifferent. There's a lot of factors, as you said, the individual, the context, you know, even the temperature of the, of the day that, that the pitching was done. As far as the high schools, too, I mean, North American baseball is not innocent of overusing high school pitchers either, right? No, they're, no they, definite, they definitely aren't. Yeah, you look at a guy through 100 pitches, 70 of them are sliders. That might be reason to be concerned, right? Well, and again, that, yeah. that used to be something we all assumed was the case. And now we start learning that um, a lot of the medical experts are telling us that it's fastball usage. And it's not fastballs necessarily, but really, really hard thrown fastballs that are causing yeah. most of the damage to, especially at uh, younger ages, to, to pitchers' elbows. So I think this is a very gray area. And I, I don't mean for us to sit here, you and I, neither of whom has a medical degree, to yep. say, here's how this all works, because I don't think anybody really knows yet, although they certainly have their suspicions. Uh, before we wrap up, is there? you've mentioned a couple of names. You can repeat them if you like, but uh, Japanese or Korean players that you really have your eye on, you're in the XFL. I think you're allowed to sign guys like that. Uh, who are you looking at from Japan and Korea over the next, say, two seasons? Uh, over the next uh, next couple seasons... And again, there's, it's very, very tough right now when trying to make uh, predictions over the next couple of years because we got a CBA coming up this, this fall. And it's going to be very, very interesting to see how players like uh, Sagano, okay, Sagano, who was posted last year and went back to Japan. He wasn't happy with the money. Now, what's going to happen this fall with no CBA in place for 2022? I think that's a factor that uh, definitely has to be taken into consideration, Patrick, when you look at these posting players. Because if there's any doubt as to the season being held, it's got to be a concern for players looking at heading over, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the players that uh, Sagano had the chance last year, he was posted, he passed. Went back to Japan. Apparently, he's got an opt-out every year over the next four. So he could look at a, a posting situation. Uh, Kode Senga wants to come over. Uh, he's got a bad ankle right now. He hasn't pitched. His team has shown no interest in posting him. But Senga, if he comes over, he can hit 100 miles an hour. He's got a great forkball. Uh, Seiya Suzuki, uh, he's expressed an interest in coming over again. 
uh, moderate power, moderate speed, great on base skills. If you're looking young and you're looking really long term, uh, Munitaka Murakami, he's 21 now. He's got 80 home runs under his belt at 21. Uh, he's in his age 21 season. Uh, as a rookie, he went 36-96. Kid's the real deal. Um, my Aggie, I mentioned the southpaw turning 20. That's long term. There's a, a southpaw reliever, uh, Levon uh, Moyanella, uh, Cuban kid. ERA the past two years, 152-169. This year his ERA is .45. He's got, uh, he's got an amazing, amazing curveball. Virtually unhittable. You could see him coming over. And if you go to the KBO, you know, uh, you got to really take a look at uh, Beck O'Conn, a 21-year-old. He's in his third year. Uh, this year, he's got 75 hits and 179 at-bats. For a 419 batting average, a 495 OBP as a 21-year-old, seven homers, 47 RBIs, and his strikeout to walk is 2630. He was a rookie of the year with 29 home runs as a 19-year-old. Uh, this kid is, again, about three, three, four years away, but he's, he's the type of player that will be young enough when he comes over that I think he'll generate interest, assuming, of course, that his career continues to develop in Korea over the next three or four years, uh, Patrick. So there's there's some names of some guys that I think uh, I think your listeners uh, might be interested in tracking. And what about if they want to track on their own? Uh, what information sources can you uh, offer or recommend? Uh, you mentioned a couple earlier, but... Where do you go when you're trying to find out information in case anybody who's listening thinks, hey, I could look into this myself. I find it interesting. Uh, there's a KBO stat site. Uh, it's called, the one that I use is called, uh, where are we here? MyKBOStats.com. Uh, a great site. Provides you all the information, game scores, player information, stats, uh, when you look at Japan, uh, you go to the NPB official English language site, and it'll provide you with all of the stats you'd ever want. And if you're looking for a great reference source and a gentleman that uh, I actually subscribe to his service, uh, the gentleman's name is Jim Allen. Uh, he's been in Japan, I believe, for about 30 years living. He's American. But he provides uh, daily write-ups on the Japanese lakes. He worked for the uh, the main newspaper in Japan for years in the sports department. And he has his own blog. Uh, I believe it's called Jim jimallen.com. Uh, if you want to learn a lot about the game, Jim Allen is the guy to listen to because he's followed it extensively for years. And he's somebody that... Uh, Somebody that I follow, very nice man and very, very knowledgeable, Patrick. So there's the three sources that I would recommend. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com, expert on Japanese and Korean baseball. And gosh, it's uh, so interesting to talk about this stuff, uh, especially since the understanding of it is so poor. Uh, one last question. Uh, the, the Japanese leagues allow each team to have four gaijin, they call them, uh, foreign players. And right. are those players, once they sign contracts in Japanese baseball, subject to the same posting rules if they want to come back? 
Uh, no, they're not. There's a clause in their agreement. They tick off the box and they're, uh, they're only one year deals extensively. Uh, but when their free agency occurs, they, they can move on just like, just like any, any free agent in North America, Patrick. So the other thing is they're allowed for, they're allowed four players on the active roster, but they are allowed a total of more than four. There, there is no total. If you look at the Eastern Western, the minor league teams, that's only four players on the active 28 man roster of which uh, three, the most you can have is either three pitchers or three hitters. You can't have four of each. And the rosters are submitted. There's a 28-man major league roster. Uh, there's a game roster. I believe it's still 25. Okay. So, uh, again, you can, you can have 15 North Americans as long as they're not all in the big league roster. Well, as I said, Tim, this has been really interesting. I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at our slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Uh, you can use Japanese players if you want, I guess, but I'm really more curious <laughs> about uh, guys who are in the big leagues right now. Let's start yeah. with a slump. This is a player who is struggling, but you think is worth hanging on to. Well, you know, it, if you had a player right now that had a total of three home runs, 14 RBIs, and is posting a 255 batting average, you might have a tendency that we want to be given up on DJ LeMahieu, but he's got to turn it around. You know, the, the, the kid's got too many skills to not turn it around. So, uh, hey, exercise some patience. Uh, eventually, those numbers will come around for both LeMahieu and the Yankees. Uh, hey, you might want to take a look at a hot hand like Jonathan Scope and get him into your lineup for a week or so and bench him. But I have total faith in DJ LeMahieu bouncing back over the rest of the season, Patrick. How about a pump, Tim? Uh, a player overachieving and maybe should be thinking about selling high. Well, there's a kid the Rangers brought up that right now is just tearing tearing things up and i i'd be i'd hasten to bet that a lot of teams at the top of the leaderboard in the in various leagues around the land have adolis garcia of the rangers and he's off to a great start 16 home runs 41 rbis and a 240 284 batting average well we saw hints of garcia uh being successful at memphis a couple of years ago and I, hey, I think the power is very real, but you look a little deeper, and he's got fifty-six strikeouts and nine walks. Okay, that two eighty-four batting average—it ain't getting any better. I, I'm predicting we're going to see a batting average by the end of the year in the two thirty, two forty range. Okay, I think it's going to fall. And if I had Garcia right now, I'd be looking to maximize that situation of the 16 homers 41 rbis and trying to hey and trying to get what you can for him patrick he'd be a guy i'd be looking at trying to move right now because i don't think it's going to get any better i think it's going to get i think it's going to progressively get worse moving forward and how about a dump this is an underachiever that you should be comfortable just giving up on well i'm going to give you two names okay sure. first first one is amir garrett i i've had enough Okay, I, I know he had a great spring, uh, started late, had a great spring. He's rumored to be in the mix for saves in Cincinnati. Uh, I've just had enough. 
Okay, every time he seems to look like he's pitching a little bit better, yeah, he throws out another stinker, and he did it again this week. So I've had enough of Amir Garrett. And in Tote Wars, I've also had enough of Steven Strasburg. You know, with Tote Wars, you can take and redeem players for the for your fab. And I just, after this recent injury uh, with the neck or traps or whatever it is, we've seen a hand, a neck, neck strain, a trap, a shoulder. And I've just had enough of Steven Strasburg. And I took in Tote Wars and I converted him back into fab, Patrick. I just said enough's well, enough. Uh, how about a jump hitter? This is a target if he's available in the free agent pool, maybe even this weekend. I went with a couple a couple players that I think have underachieved a little bit, but have the potential to be really good players. Kyle Tucker in Houston. Yeah, he's only hitting 256, 11 home runs. The strikeout-to-walk ratio is solid, five stolen bases. I think Kyle Tucker is, come the end of the year, is going to be a 30-15 type player with a 270 batting average. And that puts him as a... Second, third round pick, I think, when you start looking heading into next year. Uh, if I had an opportunity to buy, buy on Kyle Tucker right now, I wouldn't hesitate one bit. I'd be all over that. And it, as far as a pitcher is concerned, in, in keeper leagues especially, one guy that I absolutely love, and he's sort of suffering from Jake DeGrom syndrome in the wins department right now, which might be causing to be a bit undervalued. And that's Pablo Lopez of the Miami Marlins. Uh, okay. Strikeout and inning ERA is sub three. Uh, the kid's young upside. Uh, if I could find a way to acquire Pablo Lopez uh, for the balance of the year, and especially in keeper leagues, I'd be all over Pablo Lopez. Uh, I'd Tim McLeod slump, uh, DJ LeMayhew of the Yankees, uh, pump Adolis Garcia of Texas. His two dumps, Amir Garrett of Cincinnati and Steven Strasburg of Washington. A jump hitter, Kyle Tucker of Houston. A jump pitcher, Pablo Lopez of Miami. Well, Tim, this has been terrific. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Tim McLeod. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, Patrick. I want to thank uh, you and the whole crew from Baseball HQ for having me on. Uh, 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 you're you're a great group. You've always been good good friends. The the whole group of you. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to talk baseball with you. One Canadian to another, uh, and we avoided hockey. Amazing, two Canadians, and we didn't say a word a word about the Toronto Maple Leafs. But maybe we'll save that for down the road in Arizona. You Less can find said, the me better. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. Uh, you can find me at Prospect uh, 361. And every Friday and Sunday, we do our podcast. My waiver article is posted every Sunday, uh, early afternoon. And uh, in my spare time, I also hang out at the on the Facebook uh, page, uh, Baseball 365 and at Patent Company. And again, Patrick, I, I want to thank you very much for having me on. Greatly appreciate it. It's uh, been my pleasure. It's been so interesting, Tim. I'm so glad that we finally managed to get this all hooked up, and I do hope I get to talk to you again during the season and again uh, in the fall in Phoenix. Yes, uh, first drinks on me uh, in Phoenix uh, come October, Patrick. Well, that sounds great, Tim. Uh, Tim McLeod writes and podcasts for Prospects361.com. We'll take a quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, frequent flyer, and extra innings, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. (laughs) 
Hoogie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Quickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer in my extra innings comment are coming up. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at two Baltimore prospects, catcher Adley Rutschman and right-handed starter Grayson Rodriguez, is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With fans back at the ballpark and warmer weather and longer days on the way, there's plenty of excitement around Major League Baseball. Unfortunately, fans of the Baltimore Orioles are not sharing in that excitement, and the Orioles are already 16 games out of first place and haven't had a winning season since 2016. But hope does spring eternal, and the organization does have two of the top prospects in baseball and backstop Adley Rutschman and right-handed pitcher Grayson Rodriguez. Rutschman was the first overall pick in the 2019 draft after a standout career at Oregon State that included a College World Series title in 2018 and a Golden Spikes Award in 2019 as the best collegiate player in the country. The switch-hitting Rutschman held his own in his pro debut and spent 2020 at the Orioles' alternate training site where he impressed with his maturity and all-around offensive game. At the plate, Rutschman has plus bat speed, plus power, and an advanced understanding of the strike zone. In college, Rutschman walked 154 times while striking out just 117 times and 664 at-bats. That ability to force pitchers into the strike zone has carried over and Rutschman is off to a nice start at AA, where he's hitting 277 with a 445 on base percentage and a 530 slugging percentage with 6 home runs and 23 walks and 83 at-bats. Behind the dish, Rutschman is a plus defender who blocks and frames the ball well with an above-average plus arm. He works well with pitchers and understands how to call a good game. The latest word out of Baltimore is that Rutschman could be up by late 2021 and should be ready to take over as the club's everyday backstop in 2022. Rutschman's teammate Grayson Rodriguez is off to an even more impressive start. In his first six starts between high A and double A, the 21-year-old right-hander is 4-0 with a 159 ERA. Rodriguez has given up just seven walks to go along with 45 punch-outs in 28 and a third innings pitched. Rodriguez comes after hitters with a plus fastball that sits at 95 to 98 and a plus low 80s changeup. The 6'5 Rodriguez also mixes in an above-average slider and a fringe curveball that he's using less and less as he learns how to tunnel the fastball slider and changeup. The bump to double-A so early in the season means that Rodriguez is also on the fast track to the majors. Long-term, Adley Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez give long-suffering Orioles fans something to get excited about, and fantasy managers looking for high-upside prospects would do well to roster both with an eye towards 2022. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, Grayson Rodriguez really threw a dandy on Wednesday in his double-A debut for Bowie, allowing just one run on four hits, two walks, and eight strikeouts over five innings to get the win, and reports said his fastball was touching 100 miles an hour. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth consideration for a spot on your roster. 
And here with a look at Tampa right-handed starting pitcher Joe Ryan is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. The United States has a new secret weapon ahead of next month's Tokyo Olympic Games, but it may not be what you think. Referred to as the invisible fastball by pitcherless Hunter Denson, this secret weapon was apparently developed in a swimming pool and not a lab. Yet perhaps it could help the Tampa Bay Rays and Team USA win a new arms race when it comes to pitching. We'll explain. In a March 7, 2021 Tampa Bay Times article by John Romano, cleverly titled, Something About His Fastball Means He's No Ordinary Joe, Tampa Bay Rays 25-year-old right-hander Joe Ryan, referring to his extraordinary fastball, was quoted as saying, I kind of like it being a secret, I guess. Joe Ryan continued, The less I know, the better. I've thrown it for a long time. I just think about throwing it through the target every time, and that's it. I couldn't tell you the analytics. They haven't figured it out. People like to think they have an answer, but I don't know what it is. I haven't sat down with anyone that's told me what makes it special. Special? Maybe. But invisible? Well... According to our own Chris Blessing, in his September 3rd, 2019 Miners, the Eyes Have It column on BaseballHQ.com, the rising action created from Joe Ryan's three-fourths arm slot makes it nearly impossible for hitters to read the angle. So nearly invisible, it's tough to see all the angles. That's why 25-year-old Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Joe Ryan, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a... Secret weapon, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Yet it's hard to argue with Joe Ryan's results. Through three levels of the minors in 2019, Joe Ryan struck out 183 batters in 123 innings pitched while issuing only 27 free passes. That translates to an unbelievable command ratio of 6.7 strikeouts to walks, double our recommended elite command ratio of 3 strikeouts to walks for baseball's best pitchers. Wow! Plus, Joe Ryan has already fanned 32 in only 21 innings pitched at AAA Durham in 2021, and he's also playing for Team USA. So what's the real secret to Joe Ryan's fastball? Water polo! See, we told you it came from a swimming pool. According to an August 2nd, 2019 Baseball America article by Josh Norris, Joe Ryan was quoted as saying, In order to skip a water polo ball, you have to create some good backspin and really stay on the ball for a long time and finish your throw. So I think that helps me get that late life on the ball. On that basis, we would highly recommend adding 25-year-old Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Joe Ryan to your player pool as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about a deeper look into a gombering. Earlier in the show, Harold Nichols and I were talking about getting gombered, the new catchphrase fantasy managers use to indicate having a pitcher lay a horrendous outing on their decimals. The phrase came about as a result of the game on April 26th of this year when Colorado left-hander Austin Gomber laid an egg the size of a professional rugby ball in a start against San Francisco. In San Francisco, usually thought of as a pitcher's park. Gomber's outing was the stuff of legend. He gave up seven hits, four walks, and nine earned runs, all in an inning and two-thirds. 
That outing got included, as you heard, in Ryan Bloomfield's latest speculator column about pitchers who basically gombered themselves into unsightly numbers with one gomberific outing of their own. While we were discussing the merits of deselecting one bad outing when assessing a pitcher's overall track record, Nick and I realized that the numbers alone might not be enough. After all, the base hits could have been bloops and bleeders, swinging bunts and borderline errors. Some of the runs could have scored because of unlucky sequencing. As Todd Zola said last week, and I referred to this week, homer, walk, single is bad for a pitcher. Walk, single, homer is way worse. And Nick pointed out that we didn't know how many of the runs went on to Gomber Sheep because the guy who took his place on the mound allowed a bunch of his runners to score. We speculated that maybe the bases were loaded and the next guy let those runs in. So I promised Nick I'd take a look at it, which I did by using the play-by-play summaries from BaseballReference.com and the StatCast data from BaseballSavant.com. And, well, I hate to say it, but if you got Gombered, yeah, you got Gombered. Gomber opened the fateful game on a positive note, striking out Giants leadoff hitter Austin Slater on a 75-mile-an-hour knuckle curve. Then Wilmer Flores lined a single to left, turning around a change-up, and it was no bleeder, no blooper. The exit velocity on that baby, 105 miles an hour. Brandon Belt then drew a walk, and Gomber wild-pitched Flores to third and Belt to second. Evan Longoria was next, and he smoked a 101-mile-an-hour line drive to left to score Flores. Belt was held at third because the ball was hit so hard that it got to the fielder too quickly. With runners at first and third, Gomber fell behind Buster Posey, 3-1, and and then laid a 94-mile-an-hour four-seamer in there, which Posey lined back out at about the same speed into the left-center gap, a double that scored Belt and pushed Longoria to third. Gomber might have been a little unlucky, pitching next, to Darren Ruff, who grounded a 2-1 slider through the shortstop third base hole for a single that scored Longoria and pushed Posey to third. Again, it wasn't a seeing-eye single, it wasn't a bleeder, it wasn't a blooper. Ruff hit that one at almost 110 miles an hour. So now Gomber's down 3-0 on the scoreboard and facing Alex Dickerson. After fouling off a couple of 1-2 offerings, Dickerson grounded out to second still managed to score Posey and push Ruff along to second base. Gomber then intentionally walked Mauricio Dubon, who was probably miffed that he got left out of the fun, and struck out opposing pitcher Anthony DiSclefani on three pitches. That was the inning. In the top of the second, Colorado got a couple of base runners, didn't score. In the bottom of the inning, of course, Gomber again started off with leadoff man Austin Slater. This time he didn't strike out, he singled to center. Flores then lined a single to left, which you might call a Pyrrhic victory for Gomber, in that the exit velocity wasn't 105 miles an hour, but just 97. Then Belt grounded out to first, moving Slater to third and Flores to second. Longoria followed and doubled to the deep left center alley, scoring both Slater and Flores and making it 6 nothing for the Giants. With a pinch runner in for Longoria, Gomber fanned Posey swinging, then intentionally walked Ruff and unintentionally walked Dickerson to load the bases. At this point, Colorado manager Bud Black had finally seen enough. He took Gomber out of the game and brought in Jules Chassin to pitch to Dubon. Well, apparently Dubon was miffed and he was ready for some vengeance because he smacked an 0-1 double to the base of the center field wall, clearing the bases and letting all of Gomber's last three runs score. Di Sclafani grounded out to end the inning. 
So Nick was right in guessing there might have been more to this gombering, or maybe less, than met the eye. Had Chassin got Dubon out to end the inning, Gomber's last three runs would not have scored, and his line would have been slightly less catastrophic. But make no mistake, Gomber earned all those base runners. There wasn't a cheap hit in the bunch. Five of the seven hits were over 100 miles an hour exit velocity, and the other two, 94 and 97. The average exit velocity of all those hits was 103 miles an hour. Now, none of this is to say that Gomber hasn't recovered well, as Ryan noted in his speculator column, and indeed lots of touts have pointed out that Gomber makes an interesting target after a string of positive outings post-Gombering. But for anyone who did get Gombered on April 26th, remember there was nothing cheap about it other than Chassin's failure. And to be fair, if you want to take that route, then pause and ask yourself, given how Gomber was doing at the time, what do you think might have happened if he'd stayed in? For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 27 of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com. Tim's a really fun and interesting guy, a top-notch fantasy baseball analyst, and really has excellent expertise about Japanese and Korean baseball. I'm really glad that we could get him on the show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition featuring James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst at Rotowire, as well as all the other usual great stuff. That's James Anderson coming up next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.